Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the MinMax Show podcast, a place about games, friends, and getting better. My name is Ben Hansen, and I thank thee for being here. I'm joined by the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, Kelsey Lewin. Hi, that's me. The only person here who has not interviewed Shigeru Miyamoto. I'm sure that won't come up at any point during this episode. We're also joined by the editorial director from Digital Eclipse, Chris Kohler. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to the show. I think last time you were on, you are talking about uh, the Calabunga collection, the TMNT collection. That sounds about right. And all yeah. those old stories and stuff. So nice to have you back. Congratulations. I guess we haven't kissed your ass on a podcast at least about Atari 50, but that thing freaking rules. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, has there been like a surprising amount of feedback for that or like one piece of feedback that really stands out more than the others for you? Um, I think what's really exciting for us is that when we hear from people who are like, I didn't grow up with Atari. Yep. Like, I don't really play Atari games, but this was really interesting to me. Or, you know, I once I kind of experienced the interactive documentary of Atari 50, now I I can play some of these games and I appreciate the work that was put into them or how they had to get made. And it makes me appreciate it more, which is like, for, you know, it's like, wow, tell me more about precisely what we were trying to do with this collection. <laughs> so to get that kind of feedback, that's the one we really love to hear. Yeah, totally. And like, you know, I didn't grow up with Atari stuff at all, but I played every game in there. And I think the one that popped the hardest for me was Major Havoc. Maybe I'd seen the name around, but actually playing that, I was like, this thing rules. I can't wait to play it like on a real cabinet, like on a main machine at least, just to have more of that experience because it's so fun. Get out to uh, California Extreme this year and you can play it on a, a real cabinet. All right, all right. Book the travel right now. Here we go. Uh, this is a special episode of the MinMax Show podcast. Uh, we are talking about the mind of Miyamoto. And everybody relax. We put the call out on Patreon saying we're doing this. And I saw several comments of people being like, <gasps> it's like that thing where you see a name trending on Twitter and everyone has a heart attack. I'm like, did Christopher Lloyd die? It's like, oh, no, no, no. Miyamoto's alive, everybody. We're just here to, to celebrate uh, their overall life. Um, because in this episode, is originally I was thinking maybe this would be a fun thing for like a deepest dive. Um, but I think every once in a while it helps to just like swerve into the obvious. You know, like we all know the big beats for Shigeru Miyamoto. Like, okay. Yeah, let's see, he created uh, Donkey Kong and Mario and Zelda, and he liked running around in caves as a kid, and then he said something about a delayed game is eventually good, and then he said Chris Pratt was cool, end of story. <laughs> but I feel like it's it's worthy of any mind in the industry, it's worthy to dive in and try and analyze a little bit for Chris, the most important mind in the history of the video game industry, dare I say that? Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration or overstating the case too much to say that, you know, Shigeru Miyamoto is like the key figure in the development of video games as a medium at this at this point, looking back through history, given, um, you know, not only like really not only the, the 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 foundational work that he did with stuff like Donkey Kong and Super Mario Brothers and really understanding um game design having this like innate feel for what would be good game design and level design while people were really still trying to work a lot of that out um but in the fact that he's st that he's stuck with it and continues you know to lead and continues to make um big steps and and uh you know uh, ideas that um have really helped to grow um 
the industry and the number of the number and type of people who who play games, you know, through the Nintendo DS and the Wii and then and then onwards. Yeah, for sure. So obviously this is a little bit uh, spurred on by the release of the Super Mario Brothers movie, which as of the time of this recording, we haven't seen yet. I'm going tonight with my nephews. I'm very excited about it. So we'll be doing some bonus podcasting about that here at MinMax whenever more people have seen that thing to digest it. But um, our dear friends Kit and Krista on the Kit and Krista podcast, they were talking about like basically trying to warn people like, hey, brace for impact because I would imagine this movie is going to do a boatload of money and it might have a real impact on Nintendo moving forward. This might be a weird turning point for them as a company where they're embracing the multimedia thing so more, so much more. So it's a nice time, I think, to to zoom in and try and understand Miyamoto a little bit better based on every interview he's ever done, which I have downloaded into my brain. Um, Kelsey, I know you're scared um, of yourself at times, and I don't mean to psychoanalyze too much, but no, you've talked before about like, oh, it's you love doing research, but it is such a bottomless pit. It's such a rabbit hole that you can just lose yourself in. So like, what is your process when you're like, I want to understand Miyamoto a little bit better. What, what is a researcher's step one? Oh my God. I mean, well, yeah, there were, I think you did me a great service by giving me a topic that I could not possibly prepare like adequately for. Okay. You know, I mean, to, to read every single Miyamoto interview before recording this podcast would have absolutely been impossible. Oh. So, um, I, you know, I, I do start with, with starting with some interviews and stuff. And I'm, I don't know if you guys found this, but um, there is actually someone who compiled, yes. um, it's called Sprite Cell, yep. um, a giant archive of every, I don't know if it literally is every Miyamoto interview, but it sure seems like it um, with like summaries of a lot of them too, which was really, really cool. And that's, that's kind of where I started was just kind of bouncing around the years a little bit, getting some high level stuff and being like, is there anything in here that's like, surprising to me or that i forgot that you know was him or something he said um yeah i'm totally that, with that, you. Was, that was my starting point yeah we'll put a link in the description i was amazed by that too yes yeah, sprite cell compiled this miyamoto interview archive and it's all broken up like in five-year chunks so it's great because it's like it has the first interview he ever gave which you know is what 82 something like that um and so i did read all of those up until 2000 at least like tried to like download as much miyamoto as possible and it just your brain is brimming at that point with all of these old interviews but that's like that's more fun when he's a little bit less guarded and i think overall he's kind of at that level for nintendo pr where they can't tell him to stop talking so it's not like he's the most guarded person in the industry he's better than most executives you know what i mean but still you go back to some of his interviews from the 80s and 90s and stuff and you get to see a little bit looser maybe a little more raw look at miyamoto but uh believe it or not there's some interviews from freaking chris in that archive because how many times have you interviewed the guy <laughs> um you know that's interesting it's, it's interesting this has come up because because recently i kind of was going back to see Hey, how many times, you know, during that, you know, that 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 career as a journalist did I interview Miyamoto? Um, and it looks like it's about a dozen. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was it was <laughs> a lot. Um they um what Nintendo would do is uh I mean obviously every year at E3 or every time there was an availability, I would request it. Um, but they kind of like wanted to, you know, they can't put everybody in front of Miyamoto every year at E3, just from, from a timing perspective. So I would, I would end up interviewing him, uh, every other year, basically. Um, but yeah, I interviewed him for the first time in 2002. I interviewed him for 
the last time in 2016 for Mario Run. Um, and then uh, I probably, I mean, you know, insofar as I've, I've, you know, left the media, I probably won't interview him again. But yeah, it was probably about a dozen times. So I, uh-huh. I was actually looking back through my interviews, you know, because I, I think a lot of it is like, I feel like it, it kind of does a disservice to Miyamoto to kind of like whittle him down to like, the, the sort of pithy quotes that you see, you know what I yep. mean? Like, you know, kind of kind of thrown around on on Twitter and stuff like that. And we should talk about um, that uh, that misattributed quote that's already come up about the delayed game being, uh, you know, bad, only bad for 30 minutes or whatever the quote is, because um, <laughs> or your money back. Yeah, yeah, or, I didn't, yeah I didn't exactly. Want to jump 30 in minutes or like, it's free. No. <laughs> we actually yeah, let's get that out of the way because it was mentioned, uh, but he didn't say that. Um, and that is this number one misattributed Miyamoto quote. And people have uh, done uh, research and looked back and uh, figured out essentially that the, the sort of how that game of telephone happened, which was that I there, I believe there was an article in uh, whether it was Edge magazine or something like that, where it was it was sort of quoted as a game design uh, aphorism. That was something that game designers had had said you know, to each other in the eighties and things like that. And it was sort of like said in sort of a vague way that made it sound like Nintendo had come up with that. Um, And then it got misattributed to Miyamoto. But the thing is people gaslit Miyamoto into thinking that he had said it. Wait, really? Because people kept, people kept bringing it back up to him. And there's, there's interviews in which it gets brought up and he's like, well, you know, if you know what I is like, what I meant was da da da. Like he even he even thinks that he said that in an interview, but there's no there's no evidence of him actually saying that, and there is evidence that it was misattributed somewhere along the line. Yeah, I saw that it went back. Uh, Jason Schreiber, not Jason Schreiber, uh, but Jason Schreiber back at GT Interactive in some interview in 1998 said that a delayed game is eventually good, but a rush game is forever bad. Like that thing. Mm-hmm. And so who knows if he was the person that's where it came from or just the general aphorism. But I think it's kind of the, the problem with Miyamoto. Not that there's a problem with this genius, but it, let me tell you the problem with this fella is he's such a gravitational well in the industry that it's like, all right, if it's something smart about game design, I assume it came from Miyamoto. And that is definitely the case for Nintendo, obviously, of like everyone just being like, well, you know, Miyamoto, how he designs and directs every single Nintendo game. And then, I mean, there's so much talent that gets overlooked with the Nintendo. First and foremost, probably Tezuka, who directed most of the games that people associate with you know uh, Miyamoto of like you know uh, Mario 3, Mario World, Yoshi's Island, Link to the Past. I mean it just goes on and on and on where it's like technically Miyamoto didn't direct that everybody. You often forget it but it's just like it's an easy shorthand for me like Nintendo well that's Miyamoto they're one and one it's like well it's believe it or not more complicated than the internet would have you believe. Right and a lot of that is like you know so again like uh with um there was this idea, I think, before people really started to kind of like break down and and before Nintendo really started talking publicly, you know, about it's the way that it designs games and things like that. It's like people are just sort of like, oh, well, these games are so good because Shigeru Miyamoto, the world's greatest video game designer, makes right. them all. Um, and or it gets attributed to sort of like Nintendo magic. What's the Nintendo magic? And really, there is a very specific way that these folks design games um so i mean going back like to my beginning when i first interviewed miyamoto in 2002 
And I sat down and again, a lot of this research was not done. He had not really been interviewed that much, you know, prior to that. Um, and certainly there were not a lot of like lookbacks about, you know, historical lookbacks and, and things like typically like the interviews would be like, oh, you're going to get Miyamoto for 30 minutes and you're going to talk about this new game yep. that's out yep. versus something where it's like talking about Nintendo's design philosophies or talking about the history. So, I mean, I started asking you know, because I'm young and I mean, the, the information isn't really available. And I'm just like, you know, the Mushroom Kingdom and Hyrule. And how do you guys come up with these amazing fantasy worlds? These, you know, these worlds in a box. And and he stopped me very quickly. And he was kind of like, my, he says, my job is, he said in Japanese, Ningen Kogaku. And I'm like, Ningen is person. Kogaku is like, engineer. I'm like, wait. Person that I don't I, I, I'm misunderstanding something. So I took my little my electronic Japanese translator because we didn't have cell phones. It wasn't even a translator, by the way. Translator is saying too much. It was a dictionary. It's an electronic right, English to right. Japanese dictionary that all the all the, the sort of foreign you know students and stuff like that. We'd all buy these and type in Ningen Kogaku and it pops up, says human engineering. But that's all it says. It just says Ningen Kogaku means human engineering. And I take this. I show it to Miyamoto. I'm like this. He's like, yeah, 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 that. Yeah, yeah. It's like my job is not like storyteller. My job is, you know, essentially creating like, a, you know, a machine or an interface is creating human interfaces. It's like that's what we do. And that really, you know, that moment for me kind of flipped it on its head as far as like understanding how Nintendo's game designers looked at their at their job at that point, which was, you know, essentially creating um a machine or a tool or something like that, that, that would people could naturally interface with where the, the, the human machine interface felt natural because of course that was his background. Miyamoto was, I mean, he, he had gone to school for like, you know, uh, industrial design. Industrial yeah. design. So, I mean, he thought he was going to make um, like design telephones or design appliances or things like that people would use. And so he had a lot of know-how in that regard. In fact, when, when he was first, again, like there's this sort of mythology of like, oh, he liked to draw and he liked to doodle. And there was a story of he made coat hangers that were in the shape of animals and, you know, whimsical, whatever. But in fact, he was he was really a very, you know, um, uh, uh, down to earth kind of like product designer. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and when they brought him in, his first job was not you know, draw artwork or come up with a toy or something like that. It was, Hey, we're going to be bringing out these, these, you know, the dedicated uh, game consoles. Cause they had already brought out the color TV game six and 15, which were the first products. And then um, after that, it was, um, they're going to, they were going to do the, the breakout type game, the blockbuster game and the racing type game. And they gave them to him and they said, Hey, design the cases, design essentially the player interface because, of course, these dedicated game, you know, it was like one console and the controllers were built into it. So he was essentially being asked to design game controllers. That was the first thing that he did. And he looked at the six and 15. He was like, well, these are bad. <laughs> He's like, these these are not actually good interfaces. So for um, for the breakout one, um, he. uh he, he did it so you could play it left-handed or right-handed. So you can take the machine and invert it 
and play with the paddle on one side and the button on the other side, depending on your handedness. Miyamoto famously left-handed, so always thinking about that sort of thing. And then for the driving game, he said he really wanted to have a gear shift. He's like, it's just super fun to, you know, shift gears like that in a car. So I really, he wanted to make sure that they built that into it. And the driving game ended up being like the most expensive of the dedicated machines that they did because it had a whole steering wheel gear shift kind of thing. And this is not unlike... um, the dedicated games that were being made in the U.S. by Atari and things like that. But generally, I mean, it was kind of separate tracks. You know what I mean? He was kind of he was doing this without much to refer back to because it's not like you could just easily sort of get the Atari handhelds or things like that. So um, but that was what they had him. That was what they had him do at first. Right. He's always brought that mentality. And and Miyamoto is always I think you can criticize him a bit because he's never been. Uh, a story guy, which is very ironic because he, I mean, with Donkey Kong in 1981, essentially created, you know, one of the first, if not the first, you know, game that used um, the game graphics to tell a complete story all the way through. Right. Yeah. But then he abandons that and he's like, actually, games don't need to tell stories. It's fine. (laughs) And but he's really he's a level design guy. He's 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 very much he loves the the crafting and the the placement of levels and things like that. Yeah. Um and which is why he ended up I'm going to wrap this up really quick but like um you know he uh he after taking a step back um you know from being super involved in the designs for the Mario and the Zelda games things like that he made a return uh, with Mario Run, and he's and he has said in interviews that he would be considered like the director of Mario Run, right? Where he right. was really getting like more closely involved, and I think that's because, well, a, I think they saw it as a very big, important uh, game because they knew that this could potentially reach like literally billions more people than any other Mario game they'd ever done before because it's not restricted to Nintendo hardware. And because they wanted to design something totally new, a Mario game where you could just play with one button. So I think that, and again, taking a step back and no longer, you know, working intently on, you know, the, the mainline Mario games that allowed that, that freed Miyamoto up to work on projects like this. But he did say he got pretty deep into Mario run more so than he had on a, on a Mario game in a long time, because it was, because it was that new, challenge like how do we do this and i think that i think that's probably great for them because they really needed that 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 expertise that now like 40 years of of level design expertise that started with with donkey kong yeah totally i mean that idea of he went to Nintendo to be like, oh, I want to be a toy designer. And it's like, oh, Space Invaders blew up. And then he's kind of dragged into like, uh, sure, let's start designing video games. That's where Nintendo's going overall. But it seems like he was much more looking up to like uh, your boy, Gunpei Yokoi, Kelsey Lewin. <laughs> oh, you're the biggest fan. I was like, okay, well, he designed toys, Ultra Hand and whatnot. Like, I can do that type of thing. That's why I want to bring my industrial design sensibility to Nintendo. Yeah, I mean, the the story of Miyamoto's involvement in Nintendo um Nintendo at this time period is not like an unsuccessful company, but they're still not like a incredibly prestigious, you know, graduate out of a top university in Tokyo and go straight to Nintendo kind of thing that they are today. Um, And Miyamoto was this shouldn't surprise anyone if you've like kind of watched the guy or learned about him. But like he wasn't a particularly fantastic student. He was a little whimsical and, you know, like just not not someone who was like i'm going to you know get into the top design firm and you know 
put my mark on everything. He was essentially given an interview at Nintendo as a favor because uh, his dad was friends with Hiroshi Yamauchi, the, the then president of Nintendo. So, um, you know, I, I think it was lucky that Nintendo was in this transitional period where Yamauchi could look and be like, okay, we're, you know, we've just kind of been doing this toy thing for the past decade, decade and a half. Um, we are kind of, you know, moving into this electronics area a little bit, games and electronics and toys and just this sort of mash of, you know, of things that are kind of coalescing right now. And it's like, we need, we we probably have a need for some people who can just kind of be creative. Because, you know, Nintendo, prior to when they were making games and toys, when they were just a card company, I mean, they did, they did not have creative types at the company. Right, like, right. Uh, Miyamoto's not in the first class of creative types hired at Nintendo, but he's he's up there. He's among the first people that like were at Nintendo to not just be a worker drone. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and like you know, his sense of design and his focus on controllers is so interesting. There was an interview. I think you were actually in it, Chris. Uh, so I should probably reference you for this. But it's funny. But it was like a you know 2008 interview. And uh, Clive Thompson was asking oh, yeah. about, like, yeah. hey, the Guitar Hero uh, trend rock band. It's kind of the decline of the classic controller. And Miyamoto's like, speaking as the individual who created the traditional controller, I certainly yes. don't want to speak badly of it. But it's like, oh, that's right. It's, he's that important. But, like, it's fascinating to hear him talk about controller design. Like, uh, something I should have realized, but I didn't until we interviewed uh, Giles Goddard on MinMax's channel here. You can find it. He was talking about working with Miyamoto. And he was talking about the design of the N64 controller. And he's like, well, the reason it has three prongs, obviously, is because Miyamoto's left-handed. And he wanted that idea of it being symmetrical so that you could, in theory, play on the left-hand side of things. But, like, even that idea didn't really carry through, I don't feel like, in any games because it isn't a symmetrical controller. It just has three prongs. So it's such a weird idea. But uh, And then in this 1990 interview, they're talking about the Super Nintendo controller. Uh, and Miyamoto says, we chose names because with A and B together as a group, we wanted another name that would be easily groupable, like X and Y. We certainly heard some Japanese users say they're hard to remember. And during the development of the Super Nintendo, there were other suggestions like calling the buttons 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, and 9 o'clock. <laughs> Can you imagine if they went that route? It's like, oh, of course, the 6 o'clock button. Don't forget it. Press the 9 button. <laughs> now. It's a quick time event. <laughs> well... <laughs> I mean, honestly, I kind of wish that they did, because if they had done that, then nobody could read. Because the problem is Nintendo named all the buttons and then everybody else wants to <laughs> right. read, read yes. number all the buttons. So you don't know what what A is and what B is anymore. But if if they had renamed it six o'clock, nine o'clock, nobody could rename them anymore. That is true. That is true. Um, and then it's fun, like going back and looking at the old Iwata ass. Obviously, those are a gold mine for old uh, Miyamoto quotes and stuff. But they're talking about designing the, the Wiimote and the Orville design and He's like, oh, I just feel like it needs to be something like the example they use is like the there's like a fan that's popular in sumo wrestling, like that you can hold with one hand. Like it needs to be something like that, something that easy. And then I guess Miyamoto like ran out to his car and got his remote for the car navigation system. <laughs> and that was like one of the early inspirations for the Wii mode. It's like, no, something like this, like one hand. Just can we make something like this? And so he's always been obsessed with the idea of simplifying things, getting things down to one hand, not overcomplicating it and whatnot. Um, and then adding a nunchuck and a Wii Motion Plus. Well, you got to sell yeah. it. You got to do something. There. <laughs> um, Kelsey, since you've never had the honor of uh, interviewing me, what, what do you think you would ask him about? I know this is putting you on the oh, spot man. too much, but is there one thing that stands out? No, I mean, that's such a good question because I would definitely want to like not repeat something that someone has that's already said. Um, yeah. I really appreciate um, 
you you have done some kind of like rapid fire questions yeah. on him and that's the kind of stuff that I think is really fascinating like I don't know this is a, a hokey one but it stands out to me and I like it which was um you asked him something like what is the secret to happiness or something like that or a happy life <laughs> right and it's like I don't know just something and his answer by the way was something like enjoy everything or find right. enjoyment in everything yeah and he's also with um, Anuma the Zelda producer and so I asked both of them well Ben Reeves did technically but we all wrote the questions together and so Miyamoto said the secret to a happy life is enjoy everything and then Anuma's answer was forget everything <laughs> it's like okay <laughs> perfect it's a nice dichotomy for those two perfect um so I definitely feel like I'd probably just be I would I would be preparing for three weeks and yep. finding the questions that no one has asked and then rapid firing them, I think, is my um, yeah. oh, I would also show him. This is something that um, uh, game historian Kate Willard dug up uh, a long time ago uh, now, which was uh, a copy of Popeye magazine, which was like a kind of Chris, how would you describe Popeye? It's like a like a kind of a fashion a, and boys magazine. Yeah, 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 I mean, it's a men's magazine, but not in the sense of, like, Playboy or even Max. It's like GQ or something like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So there's a there's a cover that um, is from right around the development of Mario where the, the cover of Popeye magazine, which I think a lot of people know, um, you know, Donkey Kong was also originally supposed to be a... Uh, uh, a Popeye game. So sorry, from the around the time that Donkey Kong was coming out, that had someone on the front dressed exactly like Mario. Like mm-hmm. it's just really blue overalls, red. I'll have to find the links. You can put it in the show notes or something. But I would probably show him that and be like, "Did you see this? Did you see this before?" <laughs> they did a thing of like, oh, trying to legally avert his gaze. Like we um we did something similar. Uh, where is that an E3? And it wasn't on camera, sadly, because like you can only have Miyamoto on camera for 15 minutes. So we talked to him about Breath of the Wild, I think. And then uh, the off-camera time, I asked him if he had seen that Mario, or sorry, not the Mario, but the uh, Mickey Mouse cartoon. Because there were like, Disney had just started doing new, like a new art style for Mickey Mouse. And there's like 2D shorts and stuff on YouTube. Oh, right. Yeah, this and one. It, yeah. yeah. And in one of them, uh, Mickey Mouse goes to Japan and he's like on the subway and he's like hitting blocks. And it's just literally the Mario sound effect. And so I asked if he'd seen it, and he's like, no. And so I actually got to show Miyamoto, like, the Disney homage to Mario on my phone for the first time. And he was like, he was delighted, but then he was also looking around the room, and he's like, can they legally do that? Like, they could just use our sound effects? Like, how the hell is this possible? Disney, what are you going to do about it? Right, right. And then I think I said, yeah, it's in the article, but I said, like, oh, that means you can use Mickey Mouse in any of your games. And he's like, oh, no, they are very strict over there. We shall not be doing that. It's like, okay, that's fair. Um, Chris, something that comes up all the time, uh, is his retirement. This guy's 70 years old, and uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you recall this, but you did an interview with him one time uh, where he said... Oh, no, I, yes, yes, I recall Where he this. said he was retiring, and then the world exploded, and uh, the Nintendo stock dropped 2%, um, and it was panic on the streets. If you remember, there were riots, I believe. Um, can you tell the story of just that interview and the blowback and what happened there? I think, well, uh, first of all, I owe the story to uh, Kit and Krista because I actually heard them mention uh, on their podcast, like, yes. oh, maybe Chris Kohler will tell us this story if he wants to tell it to us. Um, so Kit and Krista, I'll, I'm going to, I'll give the, we can sit down and do the whole thing. And especially because, of course, they were working there at the time. So, I mean, I'm sure we can get the the, the, the two sides of it. But I mean, the, the basic story is that, yeah, I mean, 
it was funny because it was like the last question I asked in the interview. And he had mentioned um, that he was, you know, g- getting older. And I was like, so what are you thinking? You know, is retirement ever, you know, on the on the table, you know? And uh, he basically said um, again, like he, he was just like, you know, I tell uh, the young people like, remember, I'm retiring. I'm retiring. Yep. And he's like, I don't mean that I'm going to quit Nintendo. I mean that like. This this work, this, you know, this this sort of intense work that I'm doing on these Mario and Zelda games with you guys, I'm going to be taking a step back from that. Um, And uh, so I can focus on like I want to focus on uh, smaller things. I want to focus on other things. Um, And so this I mean, you know, I mean, this was a scoop. I reported it. You know what I mean? That's it. You know, and I reported it in the sense of I put all the context around it. um, But, uh, you know, kind of as you saw, I think people took it as. Miyamoto is quitting Nintendo. You know right, what I mean? And right. the thing is, it kind of it, it the story got away because I think what kind of happened was people contact Nintendo and they were like, hey, is Miyamoto quitting? And they're like, and Nintendo was like, no. And then it's like Nintendo denies Wired Story. And I had to say, yeah. like, no, 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 this this happened. People were like, oh, you mistranslated it. It's like, no, Nintendo's translator translated it. It's like right. you have to read what's going on. And I talked to Nintendo, and I mean Nintendo. They were they were they were nice and they were like, listen, like we need to put out a statement like clarifying things, but specifically they told me like we're not like looking to this is not their words, but like we're not looking to throw you under the bus. You know what I mean? Like they didn't say that, but you know, it's like they there's like it was like I don't know, I forget exactly what it was. But like we don't want to we don't want to make it sound as if, you know, you had said something that didn't happen. Um, yeah. And so when I ran the full, you know, the, the transcript of the Q&A, like, they like gave me a little, you know, a statement that I could put at the beginning just to really clarify, like, you know, you can read all this stuff for yourself. You know, here's the clarification. Just be, you know, be clear. I mean, that's kind of the shortened version of it. Um, yeah. But, you know, what happened after that is that it was absolutely true that he, you know, took made the significant step of essentially, for the most part, handing off. Mario and Zelda, you know, to those teams because he felt that they could carry it forward on their own. And I mean, if you look at Mario Odyssey and Breath of the Wild, I think that both of those games are games that are not Miyamoto-y games. Um, I think that I think that those games are actually what happens when the teams were able to sort of explore things that Miyamoto himself might not have been as into Um, the idea of the big 3d worlds, Mario sort of set in cities and things like that. You know, the, the open world breath of the wild. I think that was actually like, you know, Miyamoto as a, as a, uh, a, a level design guy, you know, really loves those, those, those games where you start at one end and you get to the other end, you know, versus, this, you know, taking Mario and making that, you know, an open worldish Mario um, and the very open worldish Zelda. Um, so, and then when you look at what Miyamoto ended up doing, he ended up working on. Well, first of all, he he worked on um, the guide, the three DS guide to the Louvre Museum. Yes, I was going to bring that up because in the Awada yeah. asks for that. It's funny because in that Awada asks, he even talks about like. Uh, from here on out, I'll be involved in smaller projects. During an overseas interview last year, it was somehow reported that I was retiring. But this software must have been one of the projects I had in mind when I made that remark back then. It was like, oh, that's you, Chris. <laughs> He's talking about you yeah, and the one asks. It was, you know, it was a big deal. Um, and so, yeah, but it's like that is what he was. That is what he was saying. Right. And. And that was what I mean, again, if I feel like if you go and read the actual thing that yeah, I wrote totally. and not people's, um, you know, summaries of it. 
that is laid out and is very clear. Um, and so then, of course, he ends up doing Super Nintendo World and the movie and things like that. And so essentially, like, working on uh, just other stuff because, uh, you know, game design is really brutal and difficult. And I think that, like, putting Miyamoto in that position of 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 having to work, you know, so deeply on those games is not the best use of his talents, quite frankly. I think that what they're doing now actually makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I think reading so many interviews, it's maybe I was just in a weird state last night, but going through so many interviews, like especially early on, he was always talking such talking such a big game, but really elevating that idea of like, hey, I'm just interested in kind of toy design. I want to bring families together. Um, I'm not interested in the specific games. I, and also he did a lot of interviews. He's like, I don't want to repeat myself, even like the mid nineties. He's like, I'm scared. I'm just kind of repeating what we've done before. And so he, he always in so many interviews just has like big ambitions for like, I want to, the old, I think is like my definition of a good game is going to be something you've never seen or thought of before. He wants just those huge ideas that'll upset the entire market, which there's an angle you could take if you look at this of his entire career where it's like he only got to do that really a couple times. Obviously, so many legendary games, but the times where he's really revolutionized gaming or brought in a whole new wave of people. It's like, yeah, the Wii, Wii Sports. Um, What am I missing? I think like the thing with the Louvre, I think, is another example. Like that's a lot more of where his heart is at than you know, another Yoshi game or something like that. You know, like he's really passionate about that. I mean, that that whole progress or process with the Louvre of for five to six years working on implementing this tour through the 3DS, he seems so excited about that. And that Iwata asks, um, there's a section that I really thought was funny where um, he says, quote, there are a lot of theories about the missing arms of the Venus de Milo, right? I said, let's create all of those. But I was told no, because we don't have conclusive proof of how the arms were. I really wanted to make it so that if you pressed a button, it would generate arms on the Venus de Milo. <laughs> and he wanted yeah. to like mess with awesome all of his arms. Well, he's like right. 30 different types of arms. Like it, some of them <laughs> should be like, you know, big octopus tentacles or something. Some right. of them should have been like weird Buddha arms. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let the man have fun, damn it. But I'm trying to think, Chris, I mean, DS obviously found a whole new audience as well, but... When you look at that perspective of he wanted to kind of revolutionize gaming and bring a wide, wide audience, is the Wii just the biggest victory of his entire career? If if that's the goal, is just reaching new people and not giving people new ways of play, which is the latter is more what I think of when yeah. I when I think Miyamoto, um, then I think you're kind of it, kind of right um at least i mean that's certainly the most like impactful of all of those just from a pure like new people playing video games perspective but i don't know i i think of him more as a like uh, that other quote you were saying which is just you know new ways like a, a game is good if it is something you've never thought of before right or ways to play it or something like that i mean that's more what i think of when i think miyamoto yeah there's a, a variety article um where he talks about he was playing Samba de Amigo on the Dreamcast. Uh, this is a Variety's article. Uh, playing Samba de Amigo with his neighbor, a lawyer, as their children surrounded them. Uh, watching their dads shake controllers shaped like maracas and dance along the TV. This is Miyamoto. Quote, that made me realize that we should focus on the shared experience. It was truly an aha moment to see kids enjoying their dads playing video games. That changed our direction. 
I was like, I'd never heard that before. That idea of like Samba de Amigo changed the course of Miyamoto and therefore Nintendo's overall direction. That's such a wild idea. Like how much is that then steering towards the Wii just based on his fun times with family and friends, you know? And and again, it's not about because when the the Wiimote was was sort of unveiled, it 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 was like, oh, they want people to use motion controls. But he wasn't even thinking necessarily about how good motion controls were going to be. He was right. he was already thinking about how that was going to transform how people interacted with each other in front of the game and how fundamental that sort of like addition of movement was was going to be. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. It's it's really I mean yeah, he he you know, he he saw the future in that respect. And I mean the Wii itself was um you know, after after a few years of, of being this explosive fad, you know what I mean? Um, it it the the motion controls for game consoles and things like that sort of died in, in, in popularity in one respect. But in another respect, you know, that early work with motion controls, again, was sort of foundational to how people interact with virtual reality, how people are going to you know react with like mixed or augmented reality. It's like that. All that motion control work, you know, kind of started, you know, of course, it, of course, there were motion controllers before the Wii. But the idea that that was going to provide this more natural method of gameplay um, started there and is is continuing on today, because what is, you know, the Oculus controller, but just a really, really good Wiimote. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're looking at it for sure. Um, I, we made a whole video about it. Um, on Midmax's YouTube channel, so I'm, I'm obsessed with it. But I think of too, we're thinking about him just trying to swing big and, and do something completely new. Is the history of Pokemon Snap's development, which there's an old interview that kind of lays out exactly how that came to be, and it has such a wild history where it started out with kind of like a a dream project from uh, Miyamoto and Awada and Itoi, the creator of Earthbound, and they all got together to create like a new studio in Tokyo with the idea of like, all right team you're going to make something for the 64 dd that's never been seen before swing big just i want something weird and big and he phrased it like i want it to be a bomb i want it to explode in a good way or a bad way and then he was just bummed out that this kind of fresh new team was not coming up with a revolutionary idea he said everything was kind of conventional and boring um and it was just him i think who knows if this is the first time in his life he encountered this, but for an interview at least, maybe the first time he talked about just kind of being frustrated with a younger generation of game developers. I was like, I really wanted them to have fire in their bellies, but everyone's just kind of going with the motions and kind of repeating genres we've done before. Um, and then in that interview, he says, quote, uh, democracy in game development doesn't work. It's an excuse used by irresponsible people. <laughs> like, he's like, you need to have some visionary rise up and Awada and Itoi and Miyamoto were all just waiting for this group for like somebody to rise up and then nobody did. And then eventually it was like, ah, oh, crap. All right, let's just put Pokemon Snap on it and get it out the door. Here we go. And then that's the end result. And Kelsey, I was talking about it on our bonus GDC podcast, but I was kicking myself at GDC because I'm obsessed with this idea because like it was, it's seen as this was a Jack and the Beanstalk game. But I think that was just the studio branding and that they weren't actually literally working on a game about Jack and the Beanstalk and stuff. Um, but it's all a little unclear. I, this is a fuzzy memory for me because yeah. I know that this was I know this was clarified somewhere. And I think you're right. But I cannot recall the specifics of that anymore. Yeah. But this did, this did remind me because these are the same people 
um, involved here who uh, for it, I, I remembered now what I would uh, want to drill yes. Miyamoto about yes. if I ever interview him, um, which is about cabbage, uh, which comes a little bit before uh, Pokemon Snap, if I recall. Maybe it's around the same time, but it's the same people. It's, um, you know, a toy and, and Miyamoto and Iwata. Um, and it's just been it's always been this very vague, you know, thing that he has hinted at in in multiple interviews this cabbage project that has been, you know, mostly on the Nintendo 64 DD is, I think, largely what it coalesced around. Right. But, you know, just these little hints that say that's like, oh, well, it's, it's kind of like Nintendogs. That's kind of like Animal Crossing or we used those those elements in those games later or like a Tamagotchi or just all of this kind of vague, um, you know, sim and life and weird. I don't know. It, it's something that that clearly was very um of those three minds very interesting and very cool and we have i don't know i mean chris you can probably shed some more light on this or at least i know you're familiar with it but like that that is a weird project that i feel like we've never gotten closure on in a big way (laughs) yeah 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 i mean just the idea of like i mean the thing is you know often it turns out that a lot of the ideas that were you had come up with in these canceled games essentially ended up moving on to, to other games. Um, so I wonder if, you know, maybe a lot of the stuff that's in there is, is are things that we have played in Nintendo games, uh, later, um, that were used, uh, you know, and, and if we ever did sort of see what it was they were doing on it, it might be underwhelming, you know, because right, it, was like, right. it might feel too familiar. I don't know. Yeah, but you're right. In so far as yes, they they clearly worked on that for a long time, and then uh, and then and and we've just seen nothing of it. Um, I think this this kind of gets to though um, for Miyamoto in particular, and a lot of people who work for Nintendo. But I mean, for Miyamoto in particular, this um, this this uh, surprising and um, you know almost unprecedented longevity uh, of his career. Um, you know, somebody who started in. 19, you know, in the late seventies and is still at the same company working with the same people, um, you know, making the same stuff. Um, and it's like that, that know-how, because you know, when you talk about, you know, they're frustrated with younger designers, things like that. It's like, well, you can, you're going to get more frustrated as you get older to be doing the same job because, um, you you've you've seen so many things happen. You have all this institutional knowledge. You you've got you know decades upon decades of oh well we tried that and this is the reason why it didn't work. Um, and uh, that's just that you know it's that's it's very special to still have you know people like Miyamoto um, that are still in the position to be able to do something about it. And I think that's why Nintendo continues to innovate and surprise is because. Um, you know, in, in big part because you have that knowledge. Yeah. Um, so when we did that rapid fire interview with Anuma and Miyamoto for the Breath of the Wild cover story at Game Informer, it was like we had just a couple hours with them overall. So I was really happy. I was like, okay, we need to come up with some interviews that will stand the test of time. Let's hopefully just get as much in as possible. And so I'm really happy that we focused on like, it was like the rapid fire, which is really fun. And then we had an interview uh, with the two of them talking about like training the next generation of Nintendo designers. And then one about their thoughts on storytelling and one about like the role for fan feedback at Nintendo, where if you're like, okay, those are decent ish topics. Cause it drives me nuts looking through all of these old interviews when people waste the time for the sake of history. And they just ask 
questions that'll be cleared up when the game comes out. You know, it's like, just ask something. Oh, sure, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you got one shot. Don't just sit there and be like, how many stars are in this game? Like, who cares? Yeah, you right, 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 right. Yeah, but yeah. I get it. Well, I, there's, I, a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a push and pull because, you know, as a journalist, you're looking for a piece of news or a scoop. Right. Um, you're not necessarily looking to do a historical look back type thing because, you know, if you actually, if you can get um, them to reveal something to you that they, you know, were not meaning to reveal. Um, you can have a scoop or at least a mini scoop that might I may, draw attention to the story that you're going to publish. Yeah, but if I may, what, who cares? Numbers on a story for some backend on a website was twice as high as it would have been if you get a quote unquote scoop. Who gives a shit? You know what I mean? It's like, I mean, you know what? There's that, that gets to it though. There's a lot of people who um, the, sometimes the. Nintendo needs to put Miyamoto in front of uh, journalists that are going to turn that opportunity uh, into a story that draws more attention to Nintendo. Yeah. Um, they have no need to put Miyamoto in front of a historian. Right. Know, yes. Of, of, of a person whose who's, uh, focus is going to be on drawing out, you know, interesting nuggets about Nintendo's design philosophy and things like that. I mean, for, you know, I... Fortunately, you know, I mean, I have I, I was very deeply interested in all of that kind of stuff. So I did my best to, to balance that out, essentially, looking right. for the news that I could lead with, but also taking that opportunity to try to go back and and talk more generally about design stuff or uh, really. I mean, what I would love to do in all the Nintendo interviews that I did was um, I, you know, it, it, there was I mean, uh, I when I sat down with um uh, Kensuke Tanabe uh, for Donkey Kong Country Returns on yeah. the Wii. Yep. Um, I just, I, I sucked up like half the interview just asking about Super Mario Brothers 2. Of course. Because he was the director on that. Nobody had sat down with him and really grilled him on the making of that game. And so I kind of like, but the thing is, the interview was not supposed to be about that. And so there was a little bit of a tension between um he and I and PR, you know what I mean? Of like, yep. uh, Chris, can we get on to like the actual subject of this interview that you're supposed to be talking about? Now, it worked out for everybody because they got a great Donkey Kong story out of it, got a great Mario 2 story out of it. Um, but I, I always want to do that kind of stuff because, you know, again, like when I sat down with Miyamoto in 2003, um, Again, very few interviews with this guy existed, and there was a lot of like questions as to how these games got made in right. the first place. So I was sitting down with him asking stuff like, "Okay, Super Mario Brothers two, like, what did you do on that? Like, how yes. much how much of that is you? Like, how, you know, it's like, what did what did you bring to it? How did that game get made? Um, trying to fill in gaps in in knowledge that we had for the history at that time because that was that was what I was, you know." doing i was writing my book power up and you know right right that um so i was just so many things and there were there was um at the end of it i, I was kind of like i remember that interview at the end of it, it was like if you weren't designing video games anymore what would you want to do and he's like i'd like to build a giant donkey kong suit and like walk around in it um, <laughs> and i and i completely believe that uh -huh. i completely believe that and i think that with super nintendo world I think that maybe he can actually, you know, fulfill that dream finally. Well, that's him. He can him. build a Donkey Kong mech and terrorize everyone at Super Nintendo World. <laughs> that's right. And if you see Donkey Kong walking around Super Nintendo <laughs> World, just assume that it's Miyamoto under there. But it's interesting. There's a there's an Electronic Games uh, magazine interview with him from the early 90s, I think it was. Um, and they asked him there, like, you know, 
if the game industry collapsed, what would you do? Would you still be making games on your own for like your friends and family? He's like, oh, absolutely not. He's like, I, I wouldn't make any more games. But he's like, what I'd want to do is I'd want to go work at a theme park company or make toys was his answer. So yep. it's nice that like he finally gets to fulfill that wish that clearly he's had for yep. such a long time. Or he says, I would okay. like to gather children together and play games. It's <laughs> another wish that he had, which is nice. I, I, uh, I found the, I found the, the, the line out of the interview yeah. and I'm going to read it because it's actually better than I just said. Okay. okay. So the, the question was, um, do you like what, cause uh, Nintendo had just sold off rare at this point to Microsoft. And I was right. like, Hey, do you like what Rare had done with Donkey Kong? I, um, you know, like, are you, when Nintendo follows on with Donkey Kong, are you going to try to get back to, like, the original character of Donkey Kong versus what Rare did? And his answer is this. I'm going to read this uh, verbatim. Um, hmm. Well, Donkey Kong is a character that I'd like to use as long as possible in other ways. I've always thought that if Nintendo ever got into robotics, if the technology allows us, the first thing I would work on is a giant Donkey Kong robot. Then, if I ever found myself out of a job, I would wear the Donkey Kong suit and do some kind of part-time job with it. <laughs> Just like from Aliens, like the mech loader? Like, okay. I think, I think so. Yeah, yes. smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really smart. Um, mm. Yeah, uh, the Donkey Kong thing is interesting. Like, I think we talked about it before, or maybe it was on Kit and Krista's podcast talking about it, but... Um, like hearing stories from people at retro talking about the design of Donkey Kong Country Returns and just like the magic of Miyamoto was his feedback was just mind-bogglingly confusing and it would just be like this every once in a while this is like a recurring theme for everybody that has worked on a game like a new Mario game or new Zelda game or something and every time they ask Miyamoto for feedback it's always just like this what what are you talking about and so for for retro they showed the demo of Donkey Kong Country Returns on the Wii and Miyamoto's like, that's great, you nailed it. Like, he looks really big and strong, but he needs to be able to crouch down and blow on flowers. And everyone in Retro's like, are you nuts? What are you talking about? That is the least Donkey Kong thing I've ever heard. But they did it, because it's freaking Miyamoto telling him to. And they're like, you know what? Like, he was right. You needed that weird sense of whimsy in Donkey Kong and, like, a little bit more of a weird heart. And there was a, there's a quote from... Uh, Dylan, yeah, like don't like don't show your game to Miyamoto and let and ask for feedback unless yes. you are gonna unless you are anticipating like the absolute most out of left field feedback that is usually correct. Yeah, you're gonna. Yeah. It's like well, that's the it's the whole thing with I know you want to you want to read this quote, but it's like that's the whole thing about flipping the table over. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. Like it's it's like he will he can totally come in and just wildly upset everything with one observation where you're like oh that's super correct now we got to remake the whole game yeah in that Giles Goddard interview he talks about like yeah how he's absolutely not scared of throwing away months and months of work so just be like hey sorry programmers this has got to go um and that's up end of the tea table and all that stuff and then even Giles Goddard's like yeah he's always just unpredictable like he will say stuff and he does not explain his motivations clearly and Dylan Cuthbert uh, in an interview I did back at Game Informer with him where we just talked about Miyamoto and I, I always feel so bad for like Dylan Cuthbert and Charles Goddard, especially Dylan Cuthbert, where it's just everybody asking him about Star Fox for 30 years and about his old coworker Miyamoto. But there's still, I mean, Dylan in that interview with Game Informer, and I'm sure he's talked about it a thousand times, but he has so many sweet stories about like uh, his time at Nintendo. He would go out to lunch every single day to the same restaurant with Miyamoto, and he would learn Japanese from Miyamoto, and Miyamoto was learning English from Dylan. And Miyamoto would like come in with like an English word in a dictionary, like, "Can you explain how this works a little bit more?" It's just oh, it's such a sweet thing. But it, it, Dylan Cuthbert, he said that like the magic of Miyamoto is he can play something, and as like a, a test case, and even if it's really good, he's able to download into his brain like all of the ingredients of what it could be, and then put a twist on it of saying, "Look, why don't we do this instead?" 
And like at, at times, that can just be confusing and jarring for the designers. Like, well, this is a good game we got going here. What are you talking about? But it's like, I don't know. He's just he has a twisted and distorted view of the full perspective of what this thing could be, and then we'll just like zig in a certain direction when, when everybody's ready to zag, and that just freaks everybody out at times to the point that there was that interview. Uh, there's an interview with um, a toy from the '64 Dream in 1997. Um, where they had like a true or false quiz for Itoi and uh, Miyamoto. And uh, it, they asked him, Miyamoto, are you a good husband? And he said, true. <laughs> and then it's like, are you a good coworker? And he's like, uh, false. <laughs> and, then, and then they also asked him, I thought this was interesting, like, if you could redo your life, would you? And he said, yes. It's like, oh boy, that's, that's a weird note, but sure. Um, but in the interview, uh, Itoi also says, um, Miyamoto, I think his sense of sports is amazing, how he turns things into actions. It's a skill no one's ever had. Not sportsmen, not engineers, not painters. It was only created only through game development, just like there would be no need for kicking skills without soccer. I feel like for the first time there are people who think about objects or expressions in terms of their motion. For example, Miyamoto's action of stirring sugar into his coffee is nothing amazing. But when it comes to creating that action in a game, he creates the action of sugar stirring with an entirely different approach than an animator would. Okay, just that idea of the basic verbs are coming through here. Um, and Chris, just to remind you of your own history too, uh, you were talking with Koizumi about Super Mario Galaxy in an yeah. interview. Yeah, oh yeah. Do you remember this one? Yeah, I, th- I think I know what you're going to talk about. Okay, but it's, again, just that Miyamoto feedback thing of him talking about, like, uh, it's weird making a Mario game underneath Miyamoto because Miyamoto will just come in and be like, hey, Spherical Worlds. And I'll be like, yeah, okay, we'll try to get back to it. Miyamoto just keeps coming back to like, yeah, but Spherical Worlds, though, you should really focus on that for the next Mario game. And then, so, uh, Koizumi says, over time, all of these broad ideas get a little more narrowly defined. The feedback becomes a little more subtle until finally it gets to the point where Miyamoto will give us feedback. And the only person who has any idea what it means is me. And everyone else who is CC'd on these emails from Miyamoto have absolutely no idea what he is talking about. So I'll have to translate for everyone else. I think he's trying to say this. Having that sort of information gap is sort of like a puzzle or a riddle. It's like playing Brain Age. One of the things that makes Miyamoto's feedback so hard to understand is that none of his sentences have subjects. So you have to rely on context to understand a statement. But more than that, Miyamoto may not know himself what he's trying to say. Or he may be intentionally vague just to spur thought, just to give people a chance to come up with their own ideas and not limit them to the types of solutions they may be able to find. And it's always been like that. He always wanted to give far more abstract answers rather than clear answers. This, I feel like Miyamoto has a case of like, people are the absolute kindest to what would be an incredibly frustrating thing to work under. Like, that is a very kind way of describing, like, like, oh, no, he's a genius. It's actually good this way that you right. can't understand what he's saying because it spurs ideas or whatever. And, and I'm, I'm not even saying that's wrong. It's just one of those things where I think about that and I'm like, God, if my boss was like that, I'd be, like, miserable all yeah. the time. <laughs> he had a quote. I'm trying to find it from one of these interviews where he talked about, like, when I'm giving the big concept for an idea or talking about a big concept, people see me as a very jovial guy. But then when I have to dive into the weeds, everybody thinks I'm a dick, basically. But it's like, that's my job is I have to do both. And so it tends to always go south when I have to dive into the weeds. But there's an interview also that you did, Chris, if I may remind you of all this stuff, like the It's Mario Time interview. Do you remember this one? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yes, I very much do. Yes. Okay, because this really, it hit a nerve with the internet. I feel like everyone loved that because it was with, what, 
Okamoto. Uh, talk about Toyo Okamoto. Yeah. So Okamoto-san, he was he was he uh, had left Nintendo. Uh, he was there for you know like I think about ten years or so, uh, and had worked directly with Miyamoto on stuff like Pikmin and then uh, Super Mario sixty four uh, DS, yeah. um, where he had done the designs of a lot of the um, the mini games, the touchscreen mini games in Mario sixty four DS. Um, and so um, uh, he had was basically saying like. Um, they, I mean, of course, this was the Japanese game development, you know, uh, industry, and it was many years ago. So there, people would stay at the office uh, for a really long time. Um, and some, you know, one of the um, one of the other things is like if your boss is still at the office, you're still at the office. Yeah. Right. Right. Because it's like you don't leave before your boss leaves. Um, and Miyamoto never left. And so Miyamoto had tons of stuff to do. He's pulled in a million different directions. Um, and once he had finished up when they were doing Mario 64 DS, um, once he had finished up with his his duties as a Nintendo board member and all this other kind of stuff that he had to do, um, it would be about midnight or like even later than that, midnight, 1 a.m., something like that. And uh, then he'd come to everybody and be like, and it's, it'd say, it's Mario time. Um, and then they would all work together on, on the design of Mario 64 DS. And that was the time that Miyamoto had, it was, it was past midnight. And so he'd work with them for a few hours and then he'd leave at like 3 AM and then they would stay a little bit later and then they would, they would leave the office at probably four or five or something like that and get ready to do it all again, you know, the next day. Um, and that became very famous the the idea of me and this is an indirect quote of course but the idea of miyamoto coming to everybody at at 1 a.m be like it's mario time (laughs) oh my god please no but that's Mm. just amazing to show how late he's still there and there's an interview in the oh it was in the 90s that he gave where he's like ah i'm at about 80 percent energy of where i was before in my life like 10 years before but still, I mean, that was in, yeah, 1997 he was saying that. And so it's amazing still for the development of Mario 64 DS that it's still past midnight and he's running around the office screaming about Mario time yeah. having to start at that point. So the, what I thought you were going to say, by the way, in the yeah. Koizumi interview, was that my big takeaway from that was the fact that, again, as I've already said, like Miyamoto doesn't like... Uh, games with like an extensive amount of story in them. He right, really doesn't right. want even Zelda, yes, yes. even even Zelda, but especially Mario. He's like, Mario does not need story. Um, there's an interview where I did, but I talked to him. He's like, yeah, the guys, they're always trying to like do these big storyline sequences, but like, you don't need it. You need the, the minimal amount of setup. Like Princess Peach likes cake. So they should trick her into like, you know, eating a cake and then they kidnap Princess Peach and then, then that's it, you know, and, and uh, talking with Koizumi, very different. And so he was, the, he was the one, you know, he directed Mario Galaxy and he basically said like um, that he would, uh, I'll read the thing. I would try to find sneaky ways to get it in without them noticing too much. Um, those are aspects of the game that Miyamoto wasn't nearly as fond of and occasionally didn't like. Um, and talking about Mario Galaxy specifically was the, you know, the storybook with the Lumas and Rosalina, yep. um, you know, the, the childhood story of Rosalina. It's like they did that as this like children's book. Um, and like that was a way of like he tries to he would try to sneak story stuff in uh, in places like where like where people Miyamoto and others would not notice. Um, then I brought this up to Miyamoto because I decided to you know, be an asshole. And of I, I brought, you know, talked to Miyamoto. It's like, you know, Koizumi said this. 
Um, because Mar- and then Mario Gal- because Mario Galaxy Two, uh, which we were talking about at the time, they uh, were actually they they were trimming down uh, the story, and there was no. And the thing is, everybody loved the storybook. Like I don't get it. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where if all that's the that's the main like tension that I have between myself and what Miyamoto wanted to do with Mario games, because they did that storybook. People were, people were crying. Um, (laughs) That storybook, people were crying. It was one of the most amazing things that they did. And instead of saying, "Hmm, gee, maybe we'll do more story uh, with Mario galaxy Two, Miyamoto, like said in the interview, like, yeah, I put a stop to that from the beginning this time. <laughs> and he was like, he was joking around a little bit, but he right. was joking and also serious that like this time it was like, no, no story this time, guys. No story. Yeah, it's, it's oh, it has to be so frustrating. There's that classic Awada asked where they're talking about the Paper Mario series and how at a certain point Miyamoto came down is like, actually, um, you're, you don't make new characters for the Paper Mario series. Um, you're not allowed to do that anymore. You have to just work with what you got and it's mainly going to be Toads. And it's just like, a dividing line in quality then where it's like, all right, every Paper Mario game is going to be 300 Toads and they'll try and make them unique enough, but it's all just from this decree from Miyamoto being like, eh, I don't know, you don't need original characters for this story. But it's like, oh my God, you totally do for Paper Mario. That's what makes those first two so amazing. It is strange, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, I talked about that uh, too in that, um, in the 2017 interview we did with them about uh, his approach to story and just his thoughts on storytelling in Zelda along with Anuma and stuff. And and he kind of gave a pushback of like, ah, that gets misconstrued. I'm not anti-story. I feel like some quotes were taken out of context. Uh, he's like, but I just feel like it it can be done smarter and minimized as kind of his overall take. And then, you know, just hearing him talk about story was so weird because he's talking about Ocarina of Time where he's like, you know, we didn't need too much of a story for Ocarina of Time. At the core, it's the story of Link meeting and then separating from four girls. That is such a weird perspective on Ocarina of Time. Who would ever think of it that way? But sure, I guess that makes sense. Um, there's a, a shout out, by the way, to um, Simon Parkin, who did an interview with Miyamoto for The New Yorker mm. in like 2020. It's it's up there for like the best written interviews I've ever seen with Miyamoto. It's it's so good. There's so much good stuff in there about his history and stuff. And, you know, he asked Kelsey basically what you're getting at where at a certain point he just asked if Miyamoto's happy after everything he's made and everything that he's succeeded with. And Miyamoto says, yes, all of this has made me happy. It's like, okay, good. We finally got him. Oh God. And that's where that, uh, the quote about, yeah, a negative person when he's dealing with the details came from was from that, uh, New Yorker interview. Um, other random weird things here. Um, there was a Nintendo power interview in 1997 where he was talking about, um, the importance of surprising people with your game design. That's, you know, classic thing. Like I would set this up and then put the twist and he cited the influence of surprising people going back to when he was young, he used to hide traps on doors around the house to surprise his mom. So that was his point of reference for having surprising game design. It's like, yeah, I love it. Like anytime he talks about his family or like, you know, he's, I guess his wife didn't play video games until brain age on the DS is when he finally cracked her with that. Or like, he's got two kids. He's got and like she a, loves Pokemon go. Ooh, is that right? Yeah. And I don't know that that is a direct line to Pikmin Bloom or not, but I do know that uh, there are some quotes of him floating around where he's like, oh, yeah, while I'm here, I need to ha- catch a hair cross for my wife <laughs> in Pokemon Go. So, God, <laughs> on the on the Pokemon front, it's like it seems like his main contribution to Pokemon was he's the one who suggested there be two versions of the games. And even in old interviews, he insisted like, hey, it's not it's not just for money. I'm just saying Game Freak should make two versions so that everybody 
in the house can have like a different experience they can compare and contrast type of thing. I think that comes more from uh, creatures um, and the or sorry the game freak side um, the tooth because tooth they originally thing? wanted to my my recollection of this story is um, that they originally wanted to have oh I forget whatever it is is the maximum number of like randomly generated characters you can have it's like sixty two thousand or something like that and they they basically wanted it to be that. Uh, no two Pokemon cartridges were the same in that, you know, uh, uh, you'd have randomized routes and you'd have randomized... Like, if you play a Pokemon randomizer right now, that's, like, kind of what the original thing was. Um, And then, you know, as they got into it, it was like, yeah, that's going to be kind of impossible. And also manufacturers don't want to, like, make all these different versions of games and, you know, they kept being like, well, what, what if it was like, you know, five versions of the game or whatever? So I, I don't actually know. I don't know. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if Miyamoto also thought that separately, but yeah, in interviews, uh, my understanding is that actually came from, from Game Freak. That's interesting. Yeah. In interviews, they did say it was, it was credited with Miyamoto when he talked about that. Um, but, uh, but then also it gets confusing. There was a Nintendo power interview in 1997 where they asked, like, where did Pokemon come from? And Miyamoto's answer was, a small team at Nintendo EAD came up with Pokemon. I was like, what? That seems like a weird way to explain that. It's not... Uh, no, no. You know, when you're talking about uh, maybe the, 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 the design, you know what I mean? Like, you know, in terms of, like, Nintendo had people coming to them game designers sometimes coming to them sometimes people like you know uh shigesato itoi you know for with with uh, the mother earthbound series right with um concepts um that ead can then take and you know try to work with them to crystallize into like like game designs you know what i mean yeah um versus you know like things that will actually be workable so i mean it's it's possible that he you know that like that that is the you know the case it it you know depending on what your perspective is um about what do you mean by came up with you right, know? Sure. right yeah i mean that is like, miyamoto gets the worst of this and that he you know is constantly credited with like he you know he is the creator of blank and it's like well you know right. kind of sort of he, even yep. with donkey kong and that sort of thing it's like well you know he didn't know he couldn't program and like there's all kinds of mm-hmm. Right. You know, no, no single well, person for the most know, part. What I think is really important here uh, that I, I, I do think we kind of get into is so to look back at like Donkey Kong. Right. Yeah. You know, that was, um, you know, those early days um, with Miyamoto designing video games. That was actually, I think, an important, interesting step in like um, the uh, the splitting out of um, of roles in game design, because, you know, really a lot at that time in the late 70s, early 80s, there's one person making the game and they have to be, you know, programmer. Right. Like you're, you're a programmer. Didn't have any programmers. Nintendo didn't at Nintendo did not have any programmers. Uh, but Nintendo, rather than go and just like outsource a game and say, hey, somebody make us a game and we'll publish it. They wanted to design them internally. And so what Miyamoto learned is that. You can't just like, to, you know, when you go to the programmers, he he we, we kind of talked about this again in this early interview, like the the job of being. Let me let me try to let me try to actually nail this down uh, if I can find this. But really, it's basically just like him saying, like the, the job of being the game designer uh, is to be able to translate your ideas. So, yeah, to translate your ideas. That's the game designer's job. He told me right. And the idea here is like. 
you can have ideas, but then you have to like write them down and plan them out in a concrete way. So you can go to the programmers and you can tell them, do this and do that and make this and make that. So the, the big story with Donkey Kong was the sloped uh, girders that, that Mario walks up, right? The, the, yep. the platforms. And originally he was like, okay, so you're going to walk up and it's going to be a slope and you're going to walk up it. And they're like, guess what, buddy? You can't do slopes. Like you can't do diagonals. This is pixels. Like we can't just turn something diagonally. And he was like, oh, and he goes back and he's like, okay, well, here we go. You're going to have a square. And then the next square up, I'm going to take those pixels. And we're going to, we're going to shift it up and we're going to do it this way. And in fact, if you, if you go back and you look at um, like a sprite, not a sprite sheet, but like, if you look at like the graphics uh, for, for Donkey Kong, like the, um, you know, the, the, the characters uh, array that that's used, a lot of it is taken up with, these girders um, where he drew it and then he shifts it up a pixel and that's a new sprite. And then he shifts that up a pixel. Right. It took up a lot of graphics memory to be able to do it, but he was so insistent that they had to do it that he, I mean, essentially and he's kind of cutting stuff out from other places just so we can have all these girder graphics so they can fake a slope because he felt that it was so important. But ultimately it was Miyamoto who had to come up with this and say, okay, programmers, if I do, if I do it this way, we can do it, right? And it's like, oh yeah, okay. Well, if you do it that way, we can do it. And he was very wanted to be very clear about like that's the job. It's not being idea guy. Yeah. It's being the person who can figure out, given the constraints of the system, how to do this thing, and then be able to go to the programmers and say, here, if you do it this way, you can you can do it. Totally. Um, the uh, the other crazy thing. Sorry if I uh, this this sort of runs into this too, but I really want to make sure we mention this is that um, again when I talked to him, um, he he had kind of he he said like thinking back, I designed Donkey Kong like a traditional Japanese four panel manga comic. Right, story. right. That way of telling a story in four distinct parts seemed natural to me, so I created four separate screens from the opening to the conclusion. The programmers were able to do this, but they told me at the time that I was essentially asking them to make four separate games, which absolutely the gameplay changes from from screen to screen in Donkey Kong. Like one of those would have been an arcade game that he was essentially saying make four different ones. Right. Right. And what's really interesting is he didn't bring this up in this interview. And I don't know if it's because he hadn't landed on this description yet or because he didn't think I would understand, you know, what th- this, but like so much of Mario level design and therefore so much of what we constantly, what we talk about is the Nintendo magic or whatever it is, um, comes from Japanese, uh, poetry, Chinese poetry, actually. Um, the idea of, uh, what's known as Kisho Tenketsu, um, which is, oh geez, it's, it's like, uh, introduction, um, elaboration, the twist and the conclusion. Um, and the idea is that's, you know, when you read uh, Japanese manga, they do four panels in America, it's three panels, right? Because in the U S we have three act stories, you know, introduction, the, the action, and then the conclusion, right? Yep. So when you, in the U S you read a lot of comics and it's one, two, three panels in, in Japanese manga, it's always the Yonkoma manga, four panel manga, right? And the way that they script that out is again, it goes with the, the, the idea of the four lines of poetry um, and it's setting it up, developing it out, 
a twist that doesn't make sense or, or, or some sort of twist on it. And then the conclusion shows how that odd twist resolves with the story that was going on. Yeah. So in if you look at Mario levels, because this is what he did, he you know, when they started like training other people to make Mario levels, um, the design process is this idea of Shotenketsu, which is. If you play Mario levels, you'll find out that like, you know, because Mario levels are generally themed around some kind of gameplay. Right. And uh, the 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 stereotypical Mario level is it introduces you to what you're going to be doing in that level. okay, in a in a sort of a uh, harmless environment or a less less harmful environment. Then it makes you do that thing um, in a more complicated way. The third part of the level, they then take that thing you're doing and make you do something wildly different with it. And then the fourth part of the level is sort of proving the the mastery of that. Right. Um, I wish I had a, a specific example to talk about, but they they have talked about like a, a lot that like, that's how they design levels in the four act structure. And so when you're playing a Mario game, think about that. Look for that. Look for that part, that twist where it suddenly asks you to do, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, maybe you're, you know, using a raccoon tail. But then in the third part, it makes you use that raccoon tail to float versus fly or, you know, something like that or something you didn't really think about. But anyway, that's I think that's really important to talk about is that, like, there is this, um, you know, very specific thought process that does come from uh, East Asian, Chinese, Japanese uh, culture and traditions that's been brought down uh, and and that Miyamoto essentially kind of like incorporated that into level design for for video games that and that that's even today. That's and then everybody adapts it from that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, talking about you just communicating with the with the programmers and stuff to get your ideas across like that was uh an interesting tidbit, tidbit when I interviewed Reggie Fizeme on MinMax's channel here. Um, I think it was just the idea of like, you know, how do you think Miyamoto feels about dressing up as Link for the fourth time to come out on stage at E3 and be like, hi Like, he's so much smarter than that. But he, and, and Reggie's take was like, oh no, like, he loves it. Like, that's, that's his default mode is he's a showman and he's a salesman. I was like, that's a really odd angle but he's like no but like inside of nintendo like that is his job is trying to communicate with the rest of the team and he has to be a salesman to programmers consistently and like get them excited about these ideas to make all these things happen even going back to the the start of his entire career there so that's just that's his mode it's like democracy in video game design is not good but you do need to build consensus you do need right. to get everybody on your side. So you have that person that's saying, this is the way that we're going to do it, but you need to make sure that everybody is on board with it. And the way you do that is that that salesmanship. Yep, exactly. And yeah, Reggie's book, you know, is not exactly a tell-all about Nintendo or anything, but, and, and maybe it is telling how little it told, where Reggie, you know, he'd call a lot of people at Nintendo his friend. I think he called like Iwata his friend and stuff, but with Miyamoto, he's like, ah, we weren't exactly friends. Even like Koji Kondo is always kind of like, ah, we kind of keep our distance, me and Miyamoto. Um, but uh, in that book, Reggie does talk about like how Miyamoto doesn't drink. He used to smoke a lot of cigarettes, but he doesn't drink now. But at some point he went out and uh, got coffee with Miyamoto. And he said that Miyamoto was like obsessed with the design of a bunch of pipes in the ceiling of this restaurant. And he said like the entire time he just could not look away from these pipes in the ceiling to the point that 
Reggie just kept calling more and more people like higher up at the restaurant to come over because Miyamoto insisted that they explain to him how the pipes work. And maybe it's just a natural Mario connection and whatnot to make that happen. But then the other thing that's interesting in Reggie's book about Miyamoto is, I guess Miyamoto would always walk around with a black notebook. And like every meeting, he'd be drawing and taking notes in this black notebook. And Reggie at some point asked him, what you're doing over there? And Miyamoto just says, I capture ideas. (laughs) That was it. I hope Mm -hmm. he said that in English because, yeah, that is the thing is Miyamoto... Speaks a lot more English than anybody likes to believe. He just likes to take his time when answering questions for a lot of these translated things. But even like he gave a GDC keynote back in 1999 and the first like five, 10 minutes was just him speaking English before he finally shifted over to Japanese. It's, it's pretty wild to, to go back and see. Um, and then he said at the end of that, yeah, his English is excellent. Um, yeah. He, I think he's, he is a little bit uh, shy about uh, speaking in, in English, but like his comprehension is like, phenomenal yeah 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 you know at the the switch launch event there was a weird moment where i was in the elevator and miyamoto got in the elevator with me and it was literally just the two of us and like my heart was just like exploding i was like oh god how much do i try to talk to him because i've interviewed him i'd interviewed him like three times at that point i think before so he wouldn't recognize me but still it's kind of like hi good to see you busy day it was like the most i could get across oh okay yeah, you should have just been like, "Hey, Legend of Zelda, liked it, <laughs> liked it." I totally. Think, you know, I think the best way is you should have talking started talking to him about how like elevators work or something. Ooh. I mean, that's the kind of that's the kind of mind I feel like. Yes. you know, if you take away one thing from this, is like this is a very curious dude, and um, you know that that quote that's like, "What's the secret to happiness? Um, enjoy everything." Is a very like boiled down version of that, but I think what that. I think what it actually means is like that dude's just curious about everything and just interested in the way everything works. And I think that's what makes him like a cooler human being. Than all yeah, of I think so. Like there's even some of my favorite stupid moments in that rapid fire interview, but we had Ben Reeves ask Miyamoto and Anuma, like, you think you're making a career out of this then? And then Miyamoto's like, he, his literal quote was, he goes, I'll do anything as long as it's fun. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's a nice way of looking at it too. Um, yeah. So in that um, GDC talk, he had a couple interesting bits one of them uh he was talking about just like how they're so focused on the design of their specific games and then somebody just comes out of the woodwork and creates a masterpiece you know like he always says his favorite game is pac-man and that he wishes he designed pac-man he wishes he designed SimCity. um but he's talking about like yeah we were focused on making mario platformers and then tetris was made in the world and we're all like oh god i wish we made tetris of course this is what you can't think about but he says um when we were stuck on talk of the spectacular 3D graphics of Mario 64 and racing games, we saw a huge hit in the form of Tamagotchi, a tiny keychain boasting pictures made up of no more than 10 to 20 dots. At that time, I thought that Mario 64 had lost to Tamagotchi. And at that point, the GDC audience laughed, and he leans into the mic and he goes in English, I'm serious. <laughs> like, he really saw it as like, we have been defeated by Tamagotchi. Um, And even back in like a 1989 interview, he talks about how he wanted to make a game where, quote, you raise a small child. The child would have to be taught to speak and they get smarter over time. But then it's cabbage. Everything is cabbage. Everything comes back to the mystery project of cabbage. (laughs) Oh, Kelsey, I was going to say is um, we talked about it in our bonus GDC podcast. But um, we we were sitting outside the Kirby panel at GDC waiting to get in. Uh, Chris Kohler was there, obviously. Um, And uh, we're waiting for a long time. We're there really early. And so way before it started, we were just camped out in front and then uh, we're at a table and a Japanese man like sat down right next to us, but he was kind of like on his phone, but I like glanced at his name tag and he was the president of HAL. And so like I looked on my phone to see like what else he had worked on and he was designer on Pokemon Snap. 
And I was like, this guy might know that we're Jack and the Beanstalk stuff, but like I chickened out. Because it, it's just like, I don't know how much English he speaks. It's going to be uncomfortable. And Nintendo PR You've is going to. Chris Kohler with you right there. Well, he wasn't there that at the time. This was way before. If I had a Japanese speaker, absolutely. But I was like, ugh, Nintendo PR is going <laughs> to dive in front of this if I try talking to this polite man about his history. But it's just like, ugh, the answers are right there. And none of us will probably ever get to interview that dude ever again. You know, it's over. Uh, let's see. Uh, the GDC keynote, um, Miyamoto closed it. He said, My friends, let us design unique, fun software with new appeal. Let us take on new challenges so that the world of gaming is not left behind as a separate, closed-off world. And in the process, let's see if we can't make a little money. <laughs> and the crowd applauded. <laughs> uh, he had another great line. In the 1989 interview uh, in a magazine, they just asked him, What is your ideal video game? And he said... Video monitor plus computer plus a player plus friends plus question mark is all you need for a good video game. So yeah, right on, Miyamoto. Yeah, there's that Miyamoto feedback again. Yep, what does that possibly mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, also, uh, dumb fun facts, random things. Um, favorite story is Martin Hollis uh, at Rare talking about designing Goldeneye and how Miyamoto gave him the feedback that like, yeah, after James Bond kills all these people you should have a scene at the end where he goes to the hospital and he shakes hands with all of the enemies. <laughs> and it's like, what, what do you do with that Miyamoto feedback? That's an awesome idea, but maybe not in a Bond game. Um, and then other little little tidbits. Uh, this is Matt Helgeson's story, dear friend of the show, host of Crossfade, so I won't uh, detail it too much, but he was at the E3 where Miyamoto was demoing Skyward Sword, and remember, it just did not work. Uh, like the Wii Motion Plus, it was all just glitching oh, right, out on yeah. stage, this whole disaster. And Helgeson was backstage for some reason during that, and he got to see Miyamoto walk off stage after that and just tear into Nintendo people. <laughs> like, he said that, like, it was so bizarre to see, like, Mr. Smiley Mario Man just lose it and scream at all these people for that not working. But it's like, yeah, that seems justified. That, that would be pretty embarrassing. I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another weird tidbit is um, uh, when I was visiting the uh, Capcom studio in Osaka, uh, a Monster Hunter producer was talking about making Monster Hunter for you, I think. And he was talking about how Miyamoto's feedback, because they were talking to Miyamoto because it was on the 3DS, and I forget if that one was on the Wii U, I guess it was. But how Miyamoto's pitch was like, hey, you should make Monster Hunter, but you should have 100 players in this one. And he's like, uh, I don't think that's technically possible. He but... came up with PUBG? <laughs> yeah, Is yes. that what you're saying? Yes, he did. And those cowards yeah, at Capcom. Fortnite. Yep, they didn't want to do it. It just, just wasn't, you know, it... it, it, it... <laughs> ahead of his time you know the same with uh the the james bond thing and you can actually look you can you can link that back to uh miyamoto's philosophy about you know the mario characters is that he wanted to always make sure even with donkey kong he was like it's not like there's like mario is a good person and donkey kong is a bad person right like Mario, like, um, you know, mistreated Donkey Kong. Uh, he would, you know, he, this was Donkey Kong was, Mario owned Donkey Kong and he was a bad owner and he'd whip him and beat him and stuff like that. And Donkey Kong just couldn't take it anymore. So he grabbed his, his girlfriend and he escaped up to the top of this, um, to the top of the building. Of course. And so then Mario goes after him. And then to really drive that home in his next video game, it features evil Mario with a whip, you know, he put so that, you know, that game ends, you know, Donkey Kong, Mario gets the girl back and Donkey Kong, it gets knocked out. And then Mario puts him back in his cage and he gets his whip and, you know, keeps beating the shit out of him. (laughs) 
And then Donkey Kong Jr., his son, has to go rescue him from evil Mario. And so they don't uh, they don't have whip Mario anymore. But the important thing here is that, um, you know, he was like even with 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 Bowser as well. It's like Bowser is not like evil. He's just misunderstood. Right. Um, right. And so it's like he's he he just he he takes it a little bit too far. Um and that's the thing with, uh, you know, even at the end of Mario Odyssey, you know, both Mario and Bowser are like fighting each other for Princess Peach's affections. And she ends up being like, whoa, like, I don't know any of this and takes off on her own. And it it closes with Mario, like patting Bowser on the back. You know what I right, mean? Like right, right. pulling him. Um, <laughs> and that's that's so like key to what he wanted. To do. And that's why all these characters can then jump in go-karts and race each other also that's right because it's not heroes versus villains um it's it's just people who take things to the extreme in different ways (laughs) yeah in the there's a variety article where uh me was telling the story of like trying to define who mario was and he said he was talking to kotabe the artist early on and kotabe asked him who is this character talking about mario and Miyamoto says i told him mario is a person who will never hurt any other people and he says that that really struck him. That's what got to the core of Kotabi. Like, oh, now I get Mario. But don't but bring... But not gorillas. Yeah, he gorillas and gorillas. apes. Oh, yeah. he's going to lose his mind if he's anywhere near that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there's just, there's weird. There's so much weird stuff in Nintendo's history. I know it's you can't branch it out too much, but like I forgot that originally Mario was called Mr. Video. Like even before Jumpman, they called him Mr. Video. And then like... Well, I mean, you... You say you forgot that, but he was never officially called. I Mr. know, Video. but it's that like was a, like an internal name for him. That that's was right, not that's like right. ever printed anywhere. So that's it's right. okay to forget that one. I guess you're right, but then it's just fun stuff too, like how Zelda, the original design doc, it's just it was called Adventure Mario. It's like that's such a weird, twisted idea, but it's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, you every once in a while we like to play the game. Uh, we did a game informer at least of like what would be the greatest headline you could have for a story on the site right now what would be just objectively number one headline possible and i i feel like you know we'd always go for like miyamoto abducted by aliens something 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 you know something outlandish um you might have created the perfect headline when you're at kotaku with the headline quote that time miyamoto played mario on my hacked psp yes that is true yep it's perfect it it, it tells a story everyone's gonna click on that i hope you got Mm -hmm. a bonus for that or something man nope okay Uh, so but i will say like i wanted to that that story kind of weirdly like had passed into legend as like I was doing a Miyamoto interview and I pulled out my hacked PSP and showed him that I had uh, illegally downloaded Super Mario Land onto it. <laughs> what are you doing? You know what I mean? <laughs> which is not what happened. Um, the story is even crazier, which is that I was in an interview. I was going to interview Miyamoto the next day, but I was in an interview with Perrin Kaplan and I showed her um, much less of a, a you know breach of, uh, of etiquette. And I was like, oh, check this out, by the way. And um, I showed it to her and she said, I mean, this is the crazy part. She was like, we have to show this to Miyamoto. Oh, Let's God. Go. And we I, I've I have not. This has never nothing like this has ever happened to me before or since. I, I've never heard of anybody with a story like this, but I swear to God, this is what happened. She was like, we need to show this to Miyamoto. We she takes me out of the interview room on the E3 show floor, walks me right to the room where Miyamoto is. And we go in there 
And Miyamoto at this time is giving is like doing a session with a make a wish kid. Oh no. Like a hangout session with a make a wish kid. Oh no. So we don't immediately she looks in the door, she's like, nope. And she closes the door. She's like, let's just wait right here. Make a wish kid leaves, and then Perrin drags me like directly into the room with Miyamoto, with me holding the PSP. She's like, You've gotta see this. Because people had hacked the PSP like a couple of days before E3. This wow, E3. okay. This is 2005, which means the PSP had just come out in the U.S. like two months, because PSP came out in like, what, March 2005 in the U.S.? Came out late 2004 in Japan. There was a few months till U.S. release. So this is E3 2005. That means it's May, okay? It's not June or July, it's May, early May, and so they had just, the PSP had just come out in the U.S., they hacked it. And here I am with Mario Land didn't even run that well. It was just slowly. <laughs> uh, but I, but here I am giving it to Miyamoto. And he takes my, you know, jailbroke PSP for the first time and starts playing half speed Mario Land on it. It's like, oh, my God. And he's like, and he's confused. Why are we in here? Yes. And he goes, so Chris, did you make this? I'm like, no, 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 no. I got it off the <laughs> off the internet. You know, I didn't make this. No. Um, God, good God. He would have hired me on the spot. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Did yep, he see Mario Land running on the PSP made this? I wanted to show you. Did he seem mad? No, no, he was just fascinated. He was like, wow, interesting. He was he he was very like, he was very uh uh, 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 unbothered by it. Okay. You know what I mean? He's That's like, nice. Hmm, okay. All right. Here you go. I mean, <laughs> you know, this, this is an era where like the idea of ROMs being on absolutely every device is like definitely not a thing yet. Like that is no. not, nope. Nope. <laughs> that's a pretty new thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the idea that somebody, the idea that Sony brought out the PSP and within months people had, Hacked it, cracked it, and gotten a Game Boy emulator ported to it and running on it was yeah. pretty wild. For sure. Uh, and the idea that, like, I mean, yeah, it was, yeah, it was very, it was very novel, the fact that that actually happened. I know on uh, an episode of Kelsey Lewin's Collector Corner, um, you were on there, Chris, and you were showing off uh, your amazing collection of game stuff, and you had multiple drawings from Miyamoto? Just the one. Just the one? Okay, but it's my favorite because <laughs> yeah. he it's drew... It's all anybody needs. He drew Mario, but then he put an L on his hat and then realized he messed up and crossed it out and then put an M on there <laughs> instead, which is such a yes. good detail. Uh, do you have a, a favorite interaction with Miyamoto? I mean, if he's drawing art for you, that's something. And he, he knew you by name? You know, well, I guess a funny thing was that... Um, yeah, because, well, and, yeah, by by the time that Perrin and I busted in on that interview, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, un, unannounced... Um, we had done a few interviews before, so he knew who I was at that point. Okay. Uh, but then there, I, I will, okay. I'll tell this story. Maybe to sort of put a little bow on this. It's very sure. funny because, um, it was a GDC. It was, they did, it was the GDC where they did video games live. Yep. And I so saw it at maybe 2007 or something like that. And, um, there were a bunch of people in the, in backstage, um, because we were like covering the show and, uh, you know, Jonathan Mann, song a day uh the guy who does oh, yeah. a song every day yeah yeah kind of got famous at the beginning because he wrote a song about miyamoto and he was back there and he had his guitar and we knew that miyamoto was going to be at the show and so at some point uh nintendo pr walked miyamoto back to the green room past us who were backstage and you know 
Jonathan Mann ended up when Miyamoto left, he ended up doing the Miyamoto song for him. He just like jumped in front of him and played the song. The video was out there and I'm on the video. But as me as PR was walking Miyamoto to the uh, green room, um, they walked by they walked by us um, and I caught Miyamoto's eye. I'm like, you know, you know, hello. And his PR is like quickly kind of walking him, you know, to the green room. Yeah. And they he they walk him past the you know those of us who are backstage and he stops and turns back and he's like, oh Chris, I'm like yeah, how's it going? And he's like, oh hey, you know we we exchange pleasantries and then he goes to the green room. <laughs> All the rest of the people who are backstage are like jaws <laughs> on the floor, oh man, um just staring at me like what <laughs> he. He knows you. He stopped to say hello to you. That's so amazing. thank you, Miyamoto. That was really that was really cool. That was a fun <laughs> that was a fun little moment for sure. That's so sweet. Yeah, the, the best I got I think was during the rapid fire. We did a bit where we had him play the classic cup game, which Nintendo loves putting in so many of their games, right? Where you hide something underneath and then lifted it up and like it's as a piece of paper that said 2D Metroid, please, because this was before Samus returns on 3DS. And so like setting up that joke to hide it from Miyamoto and actually like slip that under there, it was like. I was very happy that that worked out, and it seemed to tickle him a little bit. And then we mm. interviewed him at E3 then, a while later, and asked him some question that he wanted to be cagey about, about, like, virtual console on Switch or something. Um, you know, one of those questions that's pointless, and it'll be answered by time anyway. Um, and then he said, like, oh, yeah, why don't you, you get your cups out, and maybe that'll tell you your answer. I was like, oh, he remembered the cups. Like, I'm sure PR just, like, reminded him right beforehand. Like, by the way, these are the people you know, that you have the honestly, cups thing for. I, I think, and I think this goes back to a lot of it. He actually really is. He, you know, a lot of us are like, uh, you know, I'm bad with faces and names and things like that. And I'll forget interactions and people and feel, you know, kind of embarrassed. But, um, and people have even told me this about Miyamoto. Like, no, if he meets you, he'll remember you. He'll remember that he met you. He'll remember your face or remember what you talked about. He's actually very, very good with, with that kind of stuff. Wow. All right. That's yeah. nice. He's not just an industrial designer. He cares about people, Kelsey, don't you see? Uh, it's so sad to like try and dig up Miyamoto stuff, but like I ended up searching my own Twitter feed to be like, every time I mentioned Miyamoto, it's <laughs> like, oh, maybe I tweeted out some good articles and stuff. I want to make sure I catch everything. And I, there's a story in there that I forgot about, but apparently... At some point during an interview with them, we were smiling for a picture, and um, this would have been like uh, 2015 or something like that. And so we're smiling for a picture, and Miyamoto says, "Everybody say we," and then I said, <laughs> "And then I said we you," and he stopped and he's like, "No, no, no, we." Like he corrected me before he took the phone. It's like, "Yes, sir, Mr. Miyamoto, uh, we." I will not acknowledge the we you, despite it being your main console right now. Thank you very much. Uh, all right, Kelsey, did we miss anything about Miyamoto? I, I know we missed a thousand, but oh, anything sure. on the top of your head? Do we, uh, I don't think we have eight more hours to do this podcast, but I don't know. I, okay. I think, I think we've kind of summed up the man pretty well. I think that's it. Yeah, there's a, there's a link in the description again for that big archive for all the interviews. So let us know. Leave a comment below with your favorite Miyamoto fact, how he loves bluegrass and swimming and all that good Miyamoto stuff. We measuring stuff. That's right, measuring yeah. stuff. I forgot that Love he's Love measuring really... <laughs> stuff. He wants all of us to play Pikmin Bloom. Right. I will be the mouthpiece for Miyamoto in this one particular instance. More people should play Pikmin Bloom. Okay, there it is. <laughs> uh, hey, Kelsey, in addition to Pikmin Bloom, do you know how uh, this whole thing operates here? 
Oh, in addition to in Pikmin other Bloom? than so it's, Pikmin it's Bloom. not steps and okay. All right, I guess it's Patreon. That's right. Patreon.com slash minmax with two N's if you enjoy this podcast so far. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'd appreciate that. Uh, thank you to everybody for letting us hit 40,000. We're very excited about that. Um, or if you want to help support it directly, you can go to patreon.com slash minmax with two N's. Find the tier that's right for you. Find something sustainable for you, and then that makes this whole outlet sustainable. It's a it's a good Shake of our hands digitally. Uh, but thank you to some of our bigger supporters, people, of course, like HelloFresh. They want you to know that HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking fun, easy, and affordable. And that is why, of course, it is America's number one meal kit. Um, it's very exciting. Every once in a while, I get an email and they'd be like, hey, your HelloFresh order is coming because you're going to be plugging on the podcast. I. I count down the days. I check every day in an excited way on the doorstep to see if they've dropped off HelloFresh because I am so excited when I know that this stuff is coming. And like, it just it just came right before the recording. And I get to look through this like it's a video game magazine and be excited about like, you know what? I'm excited to make a Monterey Jack unfried chicken or meatballs with bulgogi sauce. That also sounds good. Or one pan Santa fave pork tacos uh so i'm always excited to cook HelloFresh, uh and i don't know a damn thing about cooking but you don't need to because they make it so easy they want you to know that you can spend less time in the kitchen and it's quick and easy easy meals like HelloFresh's fast and fresh pineapple chicken tacos falafel power bowls ready in 15 minutes or less Good food is too precious to waste, they say. HelloFresh's pre-portioned ingredients cut down on your food waste by at least 23% compared to grocery shopping, which is good for you and the wallet and the planet. So jump on in, everybody. There is a link in the description for a certain special something because you can go to HelloFresh.com slash MinMax50 and use the code MinMax50 for 50% off plus your first box ships free. So again, go to HelloFresh.com slash MinMax50. Use the code MinMax50 for 50% off and then plus your first box will ship for free. Link below for all that fun stuff. And thank you to our friends, of course, at IM8Bit. They want you to know about Cozy Grove, the IM8Bit exclusive edition of Cozy Grove, which is available uh, in their wonderful online store. You can get the Nintendo Switch exclusive edition. You can pre-order it now or you can get the PlayStation PlayStation 5 edition of Cozy Grove, the iMape exclusive edition. It includes a blind bag containing a collectible enamel pin inspired by Cozy Grove's ghostly denizens. Leave it to chance, they say, or you can collect all 28 of those adorable bears from Cozy Grove, which is the game that was a little bit like Animal Crossing. Remember that one from a while back? And you can go to iMapeit's wonderful online store and use the promo code April Showers, all one word, April Showers for 10% off everything under $100. Help support IM8Bit because IM8Bit, they are big supporters of ours. They ship out a prize each and every week to the MinMax community. Whoever has the best question. So Chris, trying to remember all these questions. Whoever has the absolute best, they will be winning a prize from IM8Bit. This month, it is the Untitled Goose Game vinyl soundtrack. They'll just ship it out to this person uh, out of the kindness of their hearts. So thanks to IM8Bit and HelloFresh. There's links below for all those fun codes and promos and all that fun stuff. Um, all right. Everybody good? Any questions? Ready? I'm ready. Okay, yeah, let's great. Go. Let's go. Michael Berry says, what do you think is up with the mind of Miyamoto? No. Michael Berry says, if size and space were not a concern, what over-the-top item would you add to your gaming collection? Personally, I would love a lucky and wild arcade cabinet from Namco. Interesting pick. 
Oh. Well, I used to have a Super Nintendo Entertainment bike that I had to get rid of for space reasons, which is a it's just a wow. stationary bike um, that hooks up to a Super Nintendo. There are, are technically games made for it. Uh, there's there's two, um, which you can also be played without it. It's a, a speed racer game and um, a version of Cannondale Cup, which is like the the not Super Nintendo Entertainment bike version that that came out, but um, Oh, what is it called? It's like Mountain Bike Rally or something. Or no. Yeah, something along those, those lines. Mountain Hot. Bike Rally, I think, is what it's called. So it was Peloton um, before Peloton. Yeah. And, I mean, you can also just, like, it also just has Super Nintendo controller, like, basically split up and put on each handlebar. So you can also just, like, pedal and play whatever you want. That's cool. Um, which is how I was using it, because the games are not good. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it is, it's massive. Um and so I ended up having to get rid of it. Um, I am currently trying to keep my Rhythm Tengoku machine, which has also been a a, a, a space issue for me. Yeah. So, um, yeah, those are, I don't know, both of those are fun. Uh, but my stupid answer is at Tokyo Game Show, they made a giant, like, enormous Macy's Day parade-sized wonder swan that I would totally just <laughs> hang in front of my house if I could ever find it. <laughs> Wait, so how big is this thing? Oh, it's, I mean, you know how that used to be a thing at these trade shows at, like, yeah. E3 and stuff? There'd be, like, a big inflatable croc or something right, like that. Right, right, right. It's, like, one of those. I don't oh, know exactly so how good. to estimate the size. My guess is, like, I don't know, 18 feet? Does that sound right? Like Perfect. Something, it's big. Perfect. It's way too big. <laughs> and Chris, you have a truly absurd collection, which again you can find him in Max's YouTube channel under Collector Corner. But is there something that is just out of reach for reasonability? For, yeah, for reasonability, I, mean, I think it is arcade games. Yeah. Um, you know, to have like the row of like you know Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Junior, Mario Brothers, Punch Out, Super Punch Out, Arm Wrestling. You know, the, those those classic Nintendo arcade cabinets. Like I can't. I can't do it. I can't collect arcade games. I don't have the space. Um, you know, and also in mean, arcade games, it's, you know, there's there's maintenance issues as well, yeah. which is like, I, I don't want to get into it. You know what I mean? Um, totally. I was thinking like, oh, maybe I could have like a Donkey Kong cocktail. But even that is just like, it's just, it's big and heavy. It takes up space. It's hard to move. It's, yeah, it's, it's just like, I have to draw the line somewhere. Totally. Um, and drawing the line are like things that I can't just pick up and move somewhere. <laughs> Anything that requires a, a hand truck to move it probably isn't something that I want in my like video game collection. Right, it? right. Yeah, mine's light. And I, I did uh, maybe look for it on eBay a while ago to see if it's out there. But um, when Age Mythology, which is one of my favorite games of all time, uh, released back in 2003, GameStop had like this standee just like a cardboard standee but it was sweet because it was like Zeus with like a hard piece of lightning uh, like plastic for the lightning piece and whatnot. Um, and I remember I just asked like hey could I have that and they're like yeah sure go ahead and take it and so I had it in my bedroom for years and years and then eventually I got to the point where I just like put it on the garage then the weather got to it and it just was destroyed but I have a weird nostalgic piece for that age mythology standee like if I ever see one of those online I think I'm going to have to get that even though it is a stupid and probably too big piece of cardboard thing to have standing up in my basement somewhere but we have a mid next I'll be on the lookout for you we Thank get you. standees in sometimes really have you ever seen this one you know what I'm talking about no, I haven't. I didn't. I didn't know uh, that one existed. But that's that's fun. That doesn't seem. I don't know. That doesn't seem impossible to find. It's not as. It's probably not as expensive as like 
you know, a Pokemon standee or a Zelda standee or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I think so. Maybe I can just, I don't know, 3D print it myself or something. Uh, Jared Meyer writes and says, Hello, with two people who are very much into games history and preservation, I thought this question might be pretty apt. I've had this idea for a sort of gaming public domain law. I like, I like you, Jared. I like you coming up with ideas for laws. Basically, it would be that once a game has stopped being produced, a sort of timer would kick in. After 10 to 20 years, all the games on that console would essentially be public domain and free to download as ROMs without any legal ramifications. I think a law like this would ensure that developers and publishers can realistically get every bit of money out of their product, but then ensure that the game is accessible for players for years to come. I'd love to hear your thoughts on a bold take like that. So that would fix, like... A enormous amount of issues and it will never happen. I would like that. That's if you like go to law school and, and study the rest of your life to try to fix this. I would love for someone to fight Disney and fight the U.S. Copyright Office on a scale that grand. Um, that would be incredible. Like, I think the copyright, I mean, copyright laws need a lot of reform right now. Um, I hope. I hope we can get to that at some point. I would love for there to be a, you know, for copyright to operate on a more use it, use it or lose it kind of uh, principle. But that's that's just it's not how it was originally built and changing the whole framework, I think, would be um, would be quite a task. Right. But I mean, you know, I would love to just go back to the way it was originally, whereas, you know, you you create something, you can copyright it. Um, if you, I, I, I will say this, like, I do like the idea of when you create something, it is copyrighted to give that person that legal protection without essentially having to force them to go out and spend money to go register the copyright. Sure. At the same time, that should actually expire with any reasonable amount of time. Um, like, you know, like you, you have copyright for 14 years or something like that. Cause I think that's what it was originally in America. And then you have the option to renew that copyright once but then after, you know, 30 years or so, um, it, it goes into the public domain. And that is the only thing that actually makes sense um, is for those things to be to fall out of copyright after a few decades. Because what we have now, the system of it's it's not quite perpetual copyright, but it's been extended so much that it might as well be perpetual copyright. Right. Because well, we will all you know be dead. I mean? We will all right. be dead before games go, any games at all, go into public domain, which is exactly which is very, very stupid. I mean, it doesn't yeah. make any sense because the people that would be most likely to actually need those things or use those things are the people who are alive when it's created. So, I mean, I think absolutely we should go back to you have a limited window and that window is even that limited. It's like most of the sales of if you create something most of the sales happen within the first few years. You know what I mean? Right, right. And certainly, even if something takes off and it becomes very popular, it's like, again, at this point, like when I look back at my first my first book, you know, Power Up, you know, that's, that's approaching its 20th anniversary. I would still have, after, you know, 30 years, I'd still have 10 more years, you know, to like extract as much money from it as I possibly could before it would go into the public domain. But what we have now is a situation where things are disappearing. Like originally, there was a very nice balance between making sure that creators could get remuneration without people stealing their work um, versus the idea that, you know, the, the, the material has to go into the public domain so that it can survive um, and be copied free of encumbrances. Anyway, I'm preaching to the choir here, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> I feel like 
it doesn't go far enough in this this plan of well if they're still producing it then it's still now just 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 take it all away after a couple of decades it's well, fine I, yeah I, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I would i would uh i would love that and i don't know i mean you make a really good point about how this is this is just a major reason why things are disappearing. It's like it, mm-hmm. it concentrates responsibility into the hands of the creator, most of which are not companies like Nintendo who maybe have, you know, theoretically have the resources to keep things around forever. Um, you know, most most of these companies or most creations in general, you know, are not like Disney or Nintendo. Um, and, you know, to, to put that in the hands of... Um, of smaller developers and stuff like, okay, well you better keep this around because it's illegal for other people to keep it around. You know, it's, um, it's just, it doesn't make sense and it doesn't work. Yeah. It's easy. And we're used to the idea of like pointing fingers at Disney in particular for extending the copyright law in the United States. But I know this is a weird thing to put you on the spot for, but like, how's Japan doing for like copyright law and games made in other countries? Is that got a shorter window? Uh, I don't know if the window's shorter, but it's it's awful. Okay, it's still way too long. The situation over there is also awful. Oh, um, okay, and right. more highly punishable is my understanding. Like, oh, is like that violating right? it is, you know, I mean, we you are never going to get in trouble for like ROM piracy here, but in theory, you know, that is the kind of stuff that you that you could get in trouble for in Japan. Right, right. So, like, if Disney were to use Nintendo sound effects for a Mickey Mouse cartoon, it'd be, like, right out. Yeah, yeah. Got it, got it. Uh, Stark (laughs) writes in and says, does the cancellation of E3 have any effect on the ESA's ability to lobby on behalf of the games industry? Is the funding from E3 necessary for the ESA to continue operating in its current manner? Um, Yeah, we should have this because... It's a weird thing where E3 was canceled. Um, if you're just listening to this podcast and not getting your gaming news anywhere else, first of all, God bless you. And then second of all, yeah, right after we recorded the podcast last week where we're talking about the possible cancellation of E3, then the hammer came down and this thing isn't happening. I was um, listening to that like two days ago. It oh, was no. very, very funny. It was <laughs> Just yeah, and hearing especially, everyone be like, "No, no, it's it's probably it, it'll be bad, but it's got to still happen." Yeah, Janet and, and I trying to be like, you know, thirty minutes later, <laughs> <laughs> it's so bad. Uh, so there was an interview, and it just had a lot of corporate speak uh, with the head of the ESA talking about this stuff, being like, "Oh no, we don't need the funding. We we're we're fine. We can continue our operations without the funding that E three would provide for this thing." But Chris, as somebody who's been to an E three or two in your life, if you had to put money down, would you say? E3 is ever going to come back in any form? Not some online crap, but like an actual convention that people go to? Um, I think that at some point there will be some kind of convention that people go to that is called E3. Okay. I think that the it's a very strong brand. It still has that, you know, name recognition. Video games are not going anywhere. But ultimately, it seems like... Um, the ESA needs to figure out um, a way to pull this show off without uh, relying on this exhibit or, or that exhibitor. Yeah, totally. You know what I mean? Like yep. open it up, you know, figure out how you're going to do it. Because if you look at like, you know, Penny Arcade Expo, it's like, yeah, PAX is huge now. Right. And it's whatever 30,000 however people go to it. It's like E3 sized, you know, convention and tons of stuff happens. But they started as a little convention that like, you know, a few hundred people went to and you learn and you do it, you learn and you grow bit by bit. 
And as you grow, you start to understand how you're doing this and how to attract that audience. And then exhibitors want to get in on it, you know, whereas E3, they want it to be something that is, you know, they want it to be this, this fan expo essentially, but they want to start at huge. They want to start at taking up the whole LA convention center. Right. That to me seems like the sort of fundamental disconnect here. It's that you're trying to start massive. Um, and it's like, that doesn't make any sense. So eventually I think that they have to figure out how can they put something on that they can definitely put on um, and make sure that the demand is there from the, from the supplier side, essentially, right? Like demand is there from the people who would be exhibiting at it. Um, but I don't think it's, I think the, the name is too, um, too, too recognized and too beloved and too well known for them to simply like give up entirely. Yeah. But it's like, but it's very clear they have to change the approach. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I, I also don't understand now because actually, uh, E3 is now run by Reed Pop, who are the people who run PAX, who run Pay right. Arcade Expo. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't understand, um, or I don't have an understanding of like what that relationship is in terms of like how much control the ESA still exerts, um, how much money thrown into it or um, made from it is read pop versus the ESA. Um, but I mean, read pop has a lot of experience throwing uh, fan conventions. And I think I agree with you that kind of the, the way that it naturally must go um, is probably going to be more in a PAX like direction, but um yeah, I don't know. I mean, just to get back to the original part of this question is like, can they still operate? It's like, well, I don't even know what the details of this deal with Reed Pop are in the first place. So it's sure. kind of hard to say. Do they need to? Does it need to be in L.A.? Does it need to be in the L.A. Convention Center? Like, there's so many things about it. It's like um, trying to recapture the magic of exactly what E3 was. It's like maybe there needs to be like really like much more fundamental reconsiderations of like of the where and the when and the and the why yep uh patrick hughes writes in and says hello good folks i'm in max ahoy uh miyamoto is synonymous with nintendo but imagine a scenario where miyamoto knocks on the doors of microsoft and sony does his enthusiastic smile and wave and declare he is he is ready to direct one of their games (laughs) what game does each studio give miyamoto to direct and what does the end product of the game look like? So this Understanding is- that this would never in a bajillion years happen and wouldn't happen this way. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, well, I'll rule it out. If Miyamoto were to leave Nintendo, I, again, I feel, remember, well, first of all, we understand that if he were to leave Nintendo, he would join a robotics company that will let him make a giant Donkey Kong. That's suit, right. right. But imagine if it was Crash but Bandicoot. But if he were to somehow leave Nintendo and then literally just leave that job to just go to a different company that also makes video games and also leave these teams that he's worked with, you know, right, and, right. And, 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 you know and then show up at Sony's Take store. Take this and, question more. Yeah, what are you doing? Come on, yeah, man. Exactly. <laughs> um, so anyway, the answer, of course, is uh, uh, Blasto. <laughs> the classic 1997 yeah. PlayStation 1 game Blasto. And no. he would revive Phil Hartman to voice it as well. Uh, all the necessary ingredients there. So I, I 
when I saw this question, um, I did not have the entire context, and I thought it was more like what what is a game that's got uh, or what what studios have something with some Miyamoto energy Ooh, to it, or hey, what, that works what could he expand on? That's close enough. Yeah. Um, and I think playing through Astro's play, Astrobot's Playroom, whatever well, is that the name the, of that the game? The VR one or the PS5 one? The PS5 one. Okay, yes, that's that Astro's one. Playroom. Yeah, <laughs> Astro's Playroom. Um, that game to me felt very like, I mean, it is a tech demo, but it is a tech demo in a very Miyamoto kind of way where yeah. it's like everything is designed with the like, you're going to learn about this game through playing it. And we've set up, you know, a new challenge. I mean, it, I don't know, it follows that four panel manga thing that Chris <laughs> yeah. was talking about earlier, totally. like very, very, very clearly. Um, so I feel like that's something like that. Uh, something like that is something I feel like he could take and run with and do something really cool with. Um, like Little Big Planet is another one that comes to mind where it's just like I feel like he could do something cool with that. Like that that already feels a little Miyamoto. So close to Mario Maker. Like yeah, yeah, totally. I I hear you on the Astro thing. Like that was my first thought is Astrobot Rescue Mission, which was the PSVR game for PS4. Where like that is a fully featured game and playing that it's like, Oh God, this feels like Nintendo and Miyamoto level design. I think that game is just incredible. Um, but it's the classic thing of like in this hypothetical Patrick, if that is your real name. No, it's like probably the last thing Miyamoto would want to freaking do is go over, well, leave the company probably, but then also go over there and make another platformer. It's like, yeah, it'd be fun to have him direct a Banjo Kazooie game for Microsoft. But like, he'd probably just want to like, tinker with the HoloLens for four years. You know, like, there'd be something oh, more man, techy. Oh, man, I'd totally play a Miyamoto HoloLens game. No, that that's the dream. Awesome. That's the dream. I mean, I, I mean <laughs> I'm fascinated by this little tidbit. I forgot to squeeze it in before, but just the idea that in an old interview, Miyamoto said, like, he doesn't make any royalties on any of the Nintendo games released. He just has his basic salary. And in 2020, Nintendo earnings reports reported that Miyamoto was making $1.75 million a year. And so maybe it's gone up a little bit since then, since 2020, but it's just fun to compare it directly to that same year Bobby Kotick made $28.6 million. Andrew Wilson at EA made $35.7 million. It's like just think of what the value of yeah, those but, people yeah, for those companies. I mean, nobody, yeah, it's true. It's true. But I mean, you know, they, they're a traditional Japanese company and people don't leave. Yep, um, yep. And so as long as your basic needs are being met, you know, in, in, in the case of Miyamoto, I mean, they couldn't get away with paying him, you know, 50K a year or something like that. They clearly have to pay him over a million dollars, but it's like, you know, he's not he's not looking to extract like as much you know money out of the company as he as he possibly can either, because they all believe in the they don't want to you know they're not looking to like uh, bankrupt the company with their own salaries you know what I right. mean they'd probably rather reserve that money to have money to use to create because ultimately that's that's what certainly is what Miyamoto wants to do. Can you imagine if he just got really greedy in his old age once he turns like seventy five his main mission was just milking Nintendo for all the money they can give him. That'd be a fun twist for the entire industry. Uh, we'd all learn to hate our grandpa. Uh, Andrew Molnar writes in and says, this is a question for Ben and mostly Kelsey. All right, that's fair. Uh, my wife is starting a small business with two other women. As a small business owner, oh, as small business owners yourselves, what is one piece of advice you would offer her? I think one of the best things you can possibly do early on is uh, hire <laughs> <laughs> and just make sure that not everything is uh is falling to you. I mean, it sounds like 
he, he said his wife is doing it with other people. Yeah, yeah. Um, in a case like that, a very clear division of labor and responsibilities, um, you might end up hating them in the end, and you really don't want to get into that situation. So kind of, you know, making sure that everything is... Um, is divvied up and that you're in constant communication. I have like basically weekly check-ins with my business where it's just kind of like, okay, everything's still going cool. I have my employees send like a summary of the end of the day at the end of the day for every single store. So that even if I'm not, you know, I can't make it to every single store every single day, but I want to make sure that I know what's going on in all of them and that and that everybody else does too. You know, those don't go just to me, but those go to everybody in the company. What, what, what's um, in that summary? What type um, of stuff? It's uh, things customers talked about or requested. It's hmm. um, highlights from the day, like trade-in highlights or just other stuff like that. Um, anything that's needed in the stores. Um and uh, like what tasks were accomplished and might still need to be accomplished. Yeah. That's most of it. Right on. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like a company like MinMax, it, it, I don't know how much advice I can offer. Um, don't hire anybody else. Uh, just do all the work yourself. No. And then contract out with other people. Um, no, yeah. Well, contracting and hiring. It, yeah, like, you're that's, right. That's similar advice. It's like just don't. Don't feel like you have to take on the entire burden and and do take the time, even though you'll, you know, you'll be running around like crazy with, you know, a chicken with its head cut off or whatever, like feeling like I don't have time to train anybody. No one like it it would set me back too much. It's like, no, you just you got to bite that bullet. You have to. So I don't know. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to jump in in front of you there. No, you're you're way smarter with this. Contracting and hiring are both. Like, just getting other people involved so that you are not doing literally everything is important. Yeah. Um, and just uh, the big picture stuff of, like, not settling into a groove, you know, trying to always zoom out, finding the time, scheduling the time to zoom out and think about, like, what's what's the obvious thing that we obviously need to improve, but we just keep telling ourselves, like, oh, we'll get to it later. But just, like, taking that time, I don't know if it's a set schedule of every couple of months, every six months or something, of just resetting and be like, okay... New mission, let's improve this aspect. Let's drop this, this isn't working. Like, just scheduling time for that iteration is so much better than just letting everything build up to like, ah, eh, at some point we'll fix this, at some point we'll fix this, and then five years are going to go by and the company will implode. And it's like, ah, eh, we could have done something, you know? Uh, Bill Jones writes in and says, by the way, Kelsey, has your bird been on the back of your head the entire time and is just now poking out? Because for video people, it might be pretty jarring just to see a weird no, head poking he, around. No, he the flew side. over a couple okay. minutes ago. Good, good, good. Uh, Bill Jones writes in and says, Howdy, everybody. I'd like to get the panel's thoughts on sabbaticals. Whether you would ever want to take one or what you would do if you could step away from your current responsibilities for a month or two and then get back at it. Sabbaticals, pro or con? <laughs> Pro? Pro! Okay. Yes, I have to defend and uh, craft an argument for why it would be cool to not work for a while. <laughs> Please, the floor is yours. Have you ever taken an extended uh, sabbatical for, like, writing your book or anything like that? No. Wow, okay. <laughs> I did. Hey. I, I, took, I took a work sabbatical to do some work on my book, um, which still feels like, you know, it, it is still working, but it's a different kind of work. Um and actually, it was it was very cool. I, I got myself a hotel in downtown Seattle, and Ooh. I had my phone turned off almost all day um, while I was doing it, which was, like, just a cool way to, I don't know. I felt like I was living a completely different life for a little while. You know, I'd just, I'd walk down in the morning and get breakfast somewhere cool downtown, and then I would 
sit in this nice hotel room and I would just work on my book all day. And like I, you know, I blocked like all social media on my laptop. It was just very, it was very concentrated. And I wish I had the willpower to like do a little more of that in my daily life. But yeah, that is, that I is, think it's cool. No, that is super cool. That is exactly the dream. You know, every once in a while I think of just, <laughs> this is maybe a weird example, but um, uh, where my parents live and like I grew up, we have like, there's like 33 acres out in the middle of nowhere in the woods in Minnesota. But uh, my dad built like this wooden cabin, truly way out in the middle of nowhere. And every once in a while I just think like, what if I just took a sabbatical and just went and lived in that cabin for like three weeks without electricity or anything like would it, would I be wiser by the end of it or probably just stir crazy and annoyed by mice running around the cabin so uh, you know. should yeah you should probably have electricity turn the electricity on you think but uh, is, fine. is yeah, it helping yeah. anybody I don't know I, I could have right, right, right. I just have a big stack of books I get really wise I don't know yeah. so yeah I, don't know. I mean I've certainly taken like you know I we went on vacation and you know uh when I was writing we were, we were doing uh the the 2016 um uh, re-release of power up and I had to write a new chapter, you know, um, I, I did it. Um, my parents took a vacation to Maine, um, which is where they go every year. And then we, we flew out and joined them out there. And so I just got to sit, um, in a, in a cabin, you know, on a lake in Maine, right. It felt very much like Stephen King, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 writing, you know, just a book. Yeah. Um, and so like, that was fun, but I mean, that's also work. I mean, that's still, that's still right, at right. the end of the day, that's still sitting in front of a freaking laptop writing about <laughs> video games. So I don't know what the break was there. Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I think a sabbatical for Minmax, uh, but they're not, it would be tough. Kelsey Lewin, uh, but never say never. Um, the Juan one writes in and says, hello, Minmax crew. Uh, this question mostly for Ben, from a one to ten, how scared were you when you got a call from Greg Miller in the middle of the day? Um, I'd say I'd say it's probably a six on the scared because I mean, it's I just know it's just a f- weird feeling to be hanging around in my house, not podcasting on that day. I was literally just making hot chocolate, and then my phone rings, which is weird, and then it's Greg Miller, and it's like, okay, I have to go from a zero to on-air personality kind of funny level personality like oh this feels like a you're throwing me the deep end because like yeah last week greg miller called me up to throw me on ps i love you i think because janet was on and they're talking about uh how many people recognize janet for kind of funny versus min max and it turns out kind of funny is more popular than min max so yeah i'd say i'd say six to seven and it's not like a primal fear it's just this feeling of like oh i hope i don't blow this i hope i don't stumble over my words like a dweeb in front of the kind of funny audience but it was more bold the time that greg miller called me when I was in the middle of my honeymoon in Alaska because he knew that I was on my honeymoon. And that was like, I wasn't annoyed. I'm not the type of person to get annoyed by that, but like, that is, that is a bold move to be like, I know this dude's on his honeymoon. I'm going to call it, call and interrupt his honeymoon for the sake of putting him on a podcast in a surprising way. So that's what I thought you were talking about. I oh, didn't no. know there was a second <laughs> was instance a, of this. Yeah. At the core, <laughs> it's, it's very flattering, even if it is jarring. Um, Canadian writes in and says, Hey everybody, I don't really have a question, but I wanted to share that I passed my teaching exam on Tuesday after five long hours of advanced math. Congratulations. Congratulations. Been listening to the show since day one and listening during study breaks was a great way to unwind advanced math. I can't imagine that's like three digit numbers. I'd imagine, uh, blackjack writes in and says, all right, I've locked in my better quest goal for April. I'm going to write at least 100 words every other day. Any tips on journaling or reaching writing goals? Go to that hotel that Kelsey went to 
and disconnect from social media and then write 100 words. And I think you'll make it. Uh, but you two have written books. Like, is there a secret, you think, for just bearing down and writing? People, you know, people will say that. I mean, it's always been my job. It's literally been, I mean, well, now it's, you know, it's not, it's, you know, it's not anymore, fortunately. But, you know, uh, it was always my job for like 25 years. It was like literally the way that I got money was by writing words, um, which is a excellent motivator. Yep. I think 100 words is... Um a good starting place because you can probably like, if you get stuck, you can literally just describe what happened that day and you'll get to a mm. hundred words, you know, which I, I mean, I think it is a very valid way to just like make sure that you can do the translating of thoughts onto paper. Right. Um, right. And, and I don't know, honing those skills. Like I needed to do that sometimes even when I was writing my book, it was like, okay, I'm stuck, but I need to like, I need to write something so that my brain switches back into writing mode eventually. And sometimes I would just tab over and just start writing down some stuff, like totally random other stuff. Yep. That's it. I think it was like Douglas Adams who said, he's like, oh, writing is easy. You just stare at a blank page until your forehead bleeds. That's nice. Um, Blackjack also says, P.S. Join the book club in the MinMax Discord. All right. I guess I got to do it. Uh, Mr. Carpe Diaz says, Good news, bad news. Good news is my wife and I are about to close on our first house. Congratulations. Uh, The bad news is I have a large plastic bin of old game cases that I don't want to lug around with me. The discs are safe in a disc binder. What do I do with these cases? What do you all do with old game cases? Do you recycle them? Does that make me a bad gamer? Help me. Take them to a take them to a local game store um, or mail them to me if you need to, because we will reunite games and cartridges Ooh. with their. So I have, I have just a giant uh, wall and several bins and stuff of empty game cases that when people trade in loose stuff, we try to pair it together. And um, I'm sure I am not the only game store that does that. So find a local one and see if they will take it off your hands yeah, not, for you and then games not GameStop. GameStop. A, like a, a local independently owned game store. Yeah. Smart. Yeah. Uh all right, Chris, what do you like for question of the week? What stands out for you? Oh gosh. Yep. Um it's always a surprise. It has to be me, huh? Well we can um, we can work I on it th- together. You know what? I mean I feel like um the uh public domain question all got right. us onto some really good uh, discussion topics, and it was an appropriate question to ask, you know, both uh, Kelsey and myself. So I'm going to say the question about public domain. All right, Kelsey, subject you, near and dear to my heart. Do you concur? I'm good with that. That works for me. We have a quorum. Jared Meyer, congratulations. Uh, congratulations on knowing your audience. You just won Untitled Goose Game on vinyl for my mate bit. Uh, now it's time for a little jingle and a little segment that we call Get a Load of This. Trust me, Chris, the music was great, even though you couldn't hear it. Uh, All right, uh, I'll kick it off here. Get a load of this. It's a simple little thing, but um, Fresh Air, you know that interview show on NPR that I listen to all all the time. Um, Ari Shapiro, also from NPR, All Things Considered, a show which Kelsey Lewin was just on, by the way. It's true, I was. The the big NPR. That's... Does it, do you feel flattered to your core or are you numb to doing so many interviews now to talk about history preservation? No, I mean, it was it was scary and it was cool and um, I'm a little shy about it, I guess. I don't know. Like, I, I definitely, in doing that pre-interview and everything, I was like, oh my God, I better not screw this up. Like, 
people like people will actually hear this and they'll forget <laughs> about it because it's like, you know, a four minute segment in their drive. But like. I can't screw this up and I got to like say words rather than write them. But you also know it's going to be edited. You said that they cut out like 70% of it anyway. So they, they cut out the vast majority of it. But it still was, I mean, I think it still came across coherent. There's, you know, things I would have loved to have kept in there for more elaboration. But, sure. you know, I think to when you're speaking to an audience like like that, um, who, you know, is probably not familiar with a lot of the ins and outs and stuff, like just trying to speak very... Um, I don't know if generally is even the right word, but it's like you don't want to you don't want to confuse people. You don't want to get too into the weeds. You want to try to explain it um, at as high level, uh, as high a level as you can. Totally. Um, Uh, Anyways, so Ari Shapiro uh, from All Things Considered was interviewed by Terry Gross from Fresh Air um, and he gave just a basic interview tip. But it's even as somebody who's been interviewing people for a long time, like it's a nice reminder of he's like, don't ask questions about like superlatives that's the best way to put it he's like don't ask interviewees what's the most exciting thing or what's your favorite thing or what was the best moment of this it paralyzes everybody because they have to think about okay what is number one out of everything he's like just ask like if we're talking about a games development for example take it into our world don't be like what was the best day of the games development you know be like oh god i gotta think just it's much better to be like hey what was a really impactful day on the games development that stood out for you just asking a softer version of that so you don't paralyze everybody because it turns out it's scary if you're asking for number one, no questions asked type of thing. Uh, Kelsey, do you have one? Not a question, yeah, but a get uh, a load of this? Get a load of this. Um, I might have brought up this site on this show before, but uh, shmuplations.com does all kinds of really fantastic uh, interviews uh, uh, translated from Japanese sources yeah um and i really enjoyed just this strange 1983 interview with um with bill gates about the msx um which is just weird it's kind of wild to see a microsoft in a time before they had really accomplished that whole a computer in every home thing and then also like you know the msx was like sony engineers and like it's just all of these people that do not work together anymore at right, all right um all really working together I mean, it's, it's not like a crazy crazy interesting interview but i just really like the uh the idea of like bill gates in japan in 1983 and working with sony yeah for sure oh that's fun <laughs> uh chris not to put you on the spot is there do you have a little something to share yeah, get a load of this. So, um, uh, I, the, you may have seen uh, that the, the the trailer for the the new Barbie movie um, yeah. was was released. Uh, I think yesterday, and uh, I cracked up when I saw the the associated uh, like social media images and stuff like that because they're doing the character uh, Midge, Midge, who was you know one of Barbie's pals in the early you know sort of nineteen sixties dolls and and stuff like that. But they uh, in the movie Midge is uh, visibly very pregnant. And um, this is because I realized this, you know, I'm like, I saw that and I cracked up because I know why, because um, in uh, that it was like in 2003, um, Mattel put out a pregnant Midge uh, doll oh, no. where there was a little tiny articulated baby uh, doll inside uh, th- this doll's like pregnant uh, stomach. And you like. You you lifted it off like a lid. It was like removed <laughs> with the baby in there, fine, 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 and um, it was just so ill considered. Because <laughs> I mean, basically, like they brought this out, and it was like people don't consider 
Barbie and her, her, her friend to be of the age where they should be having the children. Right. Um, right. And then, and this is, uh, it was just, it's such, it's such an odd looking doll, especially cause you see photos of it with the, 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 the stomach like removed, you know what oh, I mean? Gross. And the baby inside is the weirdest looking thing. And so they, they took it <laughs> off the market. It's very rare, but I, I, it was very funny that the movie, it's just, just an indication of what this movie is trying to do. They, that they essentially, they're calling back to that. Yeah. Um, but if you look at the story of the, of the, the, the quote unquote pregnant midge doll, it's, 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 Pretty, pretty funny. Oh, God, yeah. I went to a, quote-unquote, museum of failure that they had here at the Mall of America, and one of the examples was they had uh, Barbie's younger sister. Pardon me, I forget her name. But there was a version... Is this growing up Skipper? Yes, where, like, you would move her arm and her breasts would inflate. I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) Chris, that you had that on the tip of your tongue is is very impressive. (laughs) No, well, well, you you know, you asked to come up with something, and I'm like, oh, I know a piece of trivia that I just <laughs> Perfect. got re- re-reminded of, basically, yeah. Uh, let's see, uh, get a lot of this from the MinMax community. There's a whole channel dedicated to that. It's just basically the, the best stuff from Twitter and the rest of the world boiled down to this Discord channel, so if you want to jump in there and check it out. Um, there was a tweet shared from Jacob Alpharad. Um, detailing this story about how someone installed OBS on a random laptop in Walmart and streamed all last night until Twitch took it down, apparently. <laughs> but I'm normally a very big privacy guy, but for some reason I think this is just really funny and cool. I'm <laughs> just installing OBS on a laptop and just streaming an empty warehouse overnight. There's no expectation of privacy at a Walmart. I guess that's true. Yeah, uh, the world's a show. <laughs> That's uh, the world's first Twitch, honestly. That's true. That's true. Uh, all right. <laughs> that is it for this episode of the MinMax Show podcast. Thank you so much for watching or listening. Again, you can go to patreon.com slash MinMax. Uh, with two ends, if you want to help support it directly, you can unlock our bonus podcast, which airs each and every week. It's called Party Chat. This week, um, it's really, again, they're just kind of business therapy sessions. If you like going behind the scenes of MinMax businessy stuff, uh, this week in particular, it was just us talking about different models for Patreon and Deepest Dive and do we shake things up, blah, 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 blah. And actually having that immediate feedback from the community is such a godsend. So if you like behind-the-scenes conversations like that or you want to hear me react live to the Blue Beetle trailer, that type of nerdery too, you can jump in and unlock the Party Chat podcast. Uh, We have an interview going up on Friday on MinMax's channel and also in that bonus podcast feed with Dead Space's uh, creative director talking about Immortals of Avium, building up that new studio. It's a fun chat, talking about his history. I mean, he goes back to Crystal Dynamics, working on Gex, uh, with Naughty Dogs Bruce Straley a bunch of fun stuff like that but also heads up that we have the next episode of Trivia Tower our trivia show is happening on Monday April 17th at 8pm Central and we're going to be joined by Brad Shoemaker from Nextlander so we're going up against the entire Nextlander community and we need your help if you jump in at that $2 tier on Patreon you can compete in game trivia to win a bunch of game prizes including an Astro A30 headset and a bunch of other fun stuff so if you're looking for a reason to jump in and support independent games media you can do that and also pro tip you can also support next lander on patreon and you'll get access to compete as well so we're having their entire community jump over so it should be a fun time uh and last bit of plugging i swear on my part but uh we're inching closer once again to hitting our goal on patreon where if we hit 3400 supporters on patreon we will be making a documentary about all of our pets so if you like the glimpses of uh, the bird walking around on kelsey's shoulders you want to see a whole damn documentary about it uh you can jump into the yeah, what's tier. up with this guy <laughs> what a weird thing let's learn more <laughs> what's about going it on? <laughs> <laughs> patreon.com appreciate it uh chris what do you got going on 
Oh my gosh. Um, well, uh, you know, we just released a new update for Kyle collection. Uh, that's got, uh, on uh, adds online play support for, uh, Ninja Turtles three, the Manhattan project Sweet. The NES, uh, version. So that, and then there's actually, so there's more, uh, material, a little bit more material now inside the turtles lair, um, where you can check out, uh, more magazine advertisements, which uh, I know Kelsey, you love magazine advertisements and also, uh, some really cool original, um, artwork, such as uh, Kevin Eastman's art that appears in the collector's edition of the game. We got a digital version of that now in the game, so everybody can look at that without logos or anything like that on it and see the uh, see the art as it is, plus some original art from the, from the older games as well. Um, and uh, otherwise, just uh, heads down, making, making new stuff that I can't talk about yet. Okay, cool. There's a link below for if you want to learn more about Chris and his work over there at Digital Clips. Uh, Kelsey, do you have something you want to point folks to? Uh, you can always check out the Video Game History Foundation's podcast, the Video Game History Hour that you just tweeted about recently. Um, enjoying. So, uh, yeah, if you if you like hearing people like Chris and I, because Chris has been on several times, uh, and you, you've been on as well, Ben. Yeah, um, wait a minute. Ramble about history and stuff. Uh, go check it out. Yeah, that last episode was like everything that I love, where it's just one person who's really passionate about Budcat. Is that the name of the studio? Budcat, yeah, Budcat Studios, and it's uh, it's just a small town studio, and that's I, we say it in the episode, but that's something that I really uh, when people are like, "What do I do for video game history?" It's like start right. where you are because there's probably a weird story in there somewhere. Right, and you even talk about the idea of like, yeah, if you love where you work, just and it goes down, grab as much as you can, save as much as you can, and this guy was clearly just really nostalgic about this period working in Iowa on like guitar hero games with this studio that also they made <laughs> they made a home depot game for the wii called like our house colon party uh i bought that immediately kelsey i was like i need to play this weird home depot game so i don't know if any money gets back to budcat in any way but uh trying to support him how i can so video game history hour podcast check it out everybody it's very good uh and thank you again to everybody who supports us at the game champion tier on patreon the 50 dollars tier you can choose any game under the sun we'll declare you the champion and then you're in the running for a big poll where we create bonus content thank you to luciano comacetto who's the champion of mystical ninja starring goemon of course michael berry is the champion of tokyo jungle Great pick, Michael Berry. Darkfish Days chose 80 Days. Very appropriate. Maniac is the champion of Half-Life Alex. Nobody had picked that one yet, so congratulations to everybody there. All right, that's it. Thanks so much for watching and listening, everybody. We appreciate it. Chris, thank you for joining. Thank you for all of your knowledge and your entire career leading up to this point. Thanks. It was good to make some use of it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, folks. Be good, have fun. Let's go. Let's go.